Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Alrighty, welcome to Weekly Weights. It's episode 50. I'm Will. With me is Alex. And with us is a special guest from America, Lyle McDonald. Lyle is... G'day, Lyle. He's giving us a wave to the camera. You're, you're allowed to say hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> or sorry, I'm in Texas. Howdy. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Lyle's sitting there in a big hat <laughs> and one of those longhorn yeah. belts. Um, Lyle is... Lyle's the author and owner of bodyrecomposition.com, which is a go-to resource for people who are looking at anything to do with strength training and diet. His master's is in exercise physiology. Is that correct? Actually, it's only a bachelor's. I I just want to qualify that. Yeah. Bachelor's in exercise physiology, but he's written a stack of books, which are again, go-to resources for coaches and trainees. So he's written a book on the ketogenic diet, a book on protein, a book on flexible dieting, a whole bunch of other ones to do with certain supplements, special fat loss stuff. And recently he's been working on a big book called the women's book, which he's had to split into two parts. Part one's out, talks about mostly diet and part two is covering training, which he's allegedly working on. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Due to come out sometime in the future, Lyle, what have I missed? Um, I, that's pretty much it. Uh, you covered the, the, the high points. I've been in this industry forever. I, I got on the internet in 1994, like when it started, because I'm that old. I was just getting out of college and kind of got online. And, you know, like every college grad, thought I knew everything. So I liked to talk and write and was on all the news groups. And then people wanted to pay me to write for their web. Everybody in like late 90s knew they needed a website. Nobody knew why. And nobody knew how to make money off of it. That's when I published my first book on the ketogenic diet in 98. Um, I wrote what I believe is the first formal book on flexible dieting. It was actually in 2004. And at the time, nobody was ready to listen. Everybody was still locked into that rigid bodybuilder. If you want to get lean, it's chicken, you know, tilapia, broccoli. And now, of course, you know, 15 years later, you you can't swing a dead cat as we say without hitting somebody that's talking about flexible diet. Like that's just all anybody talks about now. And I'm pretty sure I wrote the first, you know, and you know, it was my ultimate diet, rapid fat loss. I did protein in the two thousands. And then of course this big women's book that was, is hellish. Uh, it actually spun off out of a different project, um, that I had written or I started this like 95% done. And, and I realized after getting most uh, I realized why I'd been avoiding women's issues for about a decade. I, I know I knew subconsciously how challenging it was going to be. And it was, I mean, it was a three and a half year project. Um, and that was just to get the first half done, right? Originally I wanted to put, well, when I originally started, I'm like, Oh, how hard can this possibly be? Eh, hundred pages. This should be trivial. Right. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And it got so long that if I had tried to include all the training information in volume one, it would have been over 600 pages long and never gotten done. Hi, buddy. Um, trust me, people, they, 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 they come for me, they stay for the dogs. Uh, when my dogs <laughs> We're a very uh, pro-dog podcast. Everybody so that's my dog for the podcast. Um, so I, I just decided to split it up to, to get something out. And even volume one, which is you know, diet, nutrition, fat loss, supplements, still came in over 400 pages. And that's in the, te- like, I had to sync it to 10-point font just to make it that. Uh, it's got over 600 references because that's the kind of psycho that I am. 
Um, the training book, okay, so as you said, allegedly I'm working on it. Some of it's written, right? Some of it was actually written for volume one. I just ripped all that out of there. But I'm having to go back and, you know, add a lot of information and, and really delve into a lot of that stuff. Um, and it's also, like, if you've never written something like that, it's almost harder to rewrite from an organizational standpoint than to write from scratch. Like, just trying to fit it is like putting together a bad puzzle. But regardless, um, I work in it sort of in, in fits and spurts, and uh, it will be as, as insanely comprehensive. Like, there's topics that are probably in there that only I would even think to cover. Stuff like high heels, hair length. Right. But like breast size, like these are issues that by and large men don't have to worry about. Like, yes, some men have long hair, right? But like, you know, on average, women are going to run into it more like sports bras. There are a lot of women's issues just in the gym. And we might talk about some of those in a practical sense. Right. Guys don't think about this. If you're going to do a back extension with a plate held on your chest, you're going to do something with a chest pad. Guy doesn't have to really worry about this, where a woman might have to because it's a physical discomfort depending on her breast size. It can actually change her mechanics. We were talking about Olympic lifting. If you watch women with larger breasts, they actually have to loop the bar out after, after the explosion because they can't keep it in close, just like guys with big bellies. I mean, they got to loop the bar. So there's like, there's on top of all the differences in physiology from a muscular standpoint, a neurological standpoint, a biomechanical standpoint, recovery, fuel utilization, it's, yeah. And, and normally after a project that's long, I usually take about a decade off, like between projects like this. So the idea of going and facing down this, this next literature set is a little bit terrifying. So we'll so see. If we, if we do the maths, you've written eight or 10 books and about 10 years off between each. So you get well, it. Not, it's, not, it's usually 10 between the ones that make me want to die. Like the, the ketogenic diet, I nearly had a nervous breakdown at the end. No joke. Like that should have been a career ender. It took me three or four years to write anything because I've got a bunch of 80% written books because I would get there and then I would start to have anxiety attacks over finishing and I would just quit. But, you know, so I'll do little, I would do little short ones in between. Yeah. And then 10 years after that, I did the protein book. That was like 2006, and that was a nightmare. And then jumped to, you know, 2016, 15, and I'm doing this monster women's book. Like, you know, I did a short little, that little nutrition for recovery thing because I broke my leg. This is two years ago. Um, and I'll crank out little, little booklets in between. But to do something this research heavy and this comprehensive is usually a decade in between. But I'd really rather not wait that long. And I don't mm. think readers really want to wait that long. So we'll see. Well, Hopefully. I guess in that, um, in that little monologue, you alluded to why I think it's important that we have this discussion today, which is that there mm -hmm. are a lot of female-specific issues that are very complicated that are largely untalked about, particularly among yeah. coaches in powerlifting. And certainly, I think... I'm very guilty of it. I train women like little men, but there's right. a lot, there's a lot more different between women and men than we probably talk about. And so today we want to get a broad idea of the menstrual cycle and how it impacts training. Um, yes. And then talk about some hormonal birth control and how that might impact training as well. And then if we can bring all that together with some practical ideas about how we can improve practice specifically sure. as powerlifting coaches, that'd be awesome. Um, okay. Yeah. Let's so, yeah. question one. So basically we brought you on so that we can understand women because Will and I don't understand women at all. No. Or know anything about <laughs> no, women. But, no, but nobody does. My book, unfortunately, can't do that. 
but um, it, it, it's actually, it's, it is really interesting. And, and this might be United States, a U.S. thing, but as I was really learn, reading about this, you have to realize that probably like you guys, like I was starting from scratch. The mm-hmm. only exposure I really had to any of this was with, you know, women I dated. So I like, you know, and we form usually a lot of bad stereotypes based on that. But like I, I was having to learn an entire new vocabulary that was not, but as I wrote this and started to put up pieces online, cannot count the number of women who said, I don't even know this stuff. Like, and in the U.S. it's just not taught, right? That's just, mm. there is still, and culturally in many groups, there is just still a great deal of, I mean, shame is, that's the best word I can come up with it. It's just not talked about. And, you know, I don't know, like I said, I don't, I don't know what things are like in your neck of the woods in terms, but, but a lot of women themselves don't really have a, a true understanding of what's going on. And of course, men and male coaches, we don't have a chance. Um, yeah, I'm, so. not, I'm not really too sure about the women that we know and ha- mm-hmm. when what they know, but I, I yeah. certainly know that I know very little. Well, yeah. that's a good place to start. Anyway, so we'll start with the menstrual cycle. So okay. it occurs in a number of phases. First of right. all, what are they? Okay, so I'll sketch it out. Now, it's, it's usually assumed that the menstrual cycle is 28 days long. It's not. Actually, very few women have a 28-day cycle. A, a, a quote-unquote normal menstrual cycle is defined anywhere from 24 to 32 days. Once you get to 35 days and above, it gets into something called polycystic. It's called oligomenorrhea, very common in polycystic ovary syndrome, which actually is probably something worth at least touching on because I do think that's re- it's a very common issue with women, and I think it's seen more often than not in – it is seen in power sports. Women with PCOS often have elevated testosterone, tend to be drawn to certain activities. I think we see, probably see proportionally more of them in the strength power sports. So anyway, I'm going to assume it's 28 days, just to make it easy. So by convention, uh, day one is the start of menstruation, right? The start of the actual period and the bleeding. The cycle is divided grossly, poor choice of words, in, in general, <laughs> sorry about that, into two sections, right? The first half, the first two weeks are called the follicular phase. The second two weeks are called the luteal phase. And the middle is ovulation, which is when the egg is released. So basically coming out of menstruation, um, <clears throat> you know, the uterine lining has been shed. That's what the actual bleeding is because pregnancy did not occur. So hormonally, you see estrogen and progesterone, which are the two primary female hormones, both start low. Estrogen starts to come up. See this big peak about three days before ovulation, three to four days. That along with LH, FSA, some other hormonal stuff causes the egg uh, to be dropped. Um, Progesterone starts very low and sort of starts to sweep up to the middle of the cycle, and then it increases into that second half of the phase. Um, Also at ovulation, there's a little spike in testosterone. And honestly, realistically, that's probably to increase sex drive. Uh, whether or not, it, you know, it, it might have some training-related effects, but when, right after a woman is ovulated, this is when she's most fertile. And a whole bunch of changes happen. Women's hip shape, uh, hips move differently during this part of the cycle. They're actually more likely to uh, give someone their phone number. Like, there's also, the, like, there's a lot of, and these are biologically driven changes. Um, also, their appetite and hunger is the lowest right before ovulation. And just funny trivial tidbit, this researcher sort of suggested, and there's animal and there's actually human research in this, the women's hunger for food and drink goes down right before ovulation so that their hunger for, shall we say, another pleasure goes up. And this has actually been shown. 
the more food hunger women have, the lower their sex drive, and the less food hunger they have, the higher their sex drive. So this is all like a biological drive for pregnancy, right? So that's the follicular phase. Some things that occur during that. Um, insulin sensitivity is very high, so the body is using predominantly carbohydrates for fuel. Um, generally less inflammation. Estrogen is anti-inflammatory, and it's sort of the dominant hormone at that first half of the cycle. Progesterone, like I said, stays very low until the second half. Uh, there's a lot of data that estrogen helps with remodeling women's muscles. And I don't know if y'all have seen, there's been some really interesting research that clustering more training in the first half of the cycle compared to the second half gives better results. So in essence, women are more anabolic in the first half of the cycle, like just overall hormonally um, due to the anti-inflammatory effects, the estrogen effects, the fuel use, uh, and everything else that's going on. All right, so now we hit ovulation. The egg is released, like I said, a little testosterone spike. We enter the luteal phase. Once the egg has been released, the follicle, which bursts, forms what's called the corpus luteum. This is just all... Uh, that's where the egg implants in the case of pregnancy. So hormonally now, progesterone becomes the dominant hormone. It sweeps up to a high point at the middle of that, so day 21 roughly, and estrogen is lower. Now progesterone has its own effects. It tends to cause insulin resistance, tends to cause protein breakdown. Uh, women tend to get a little more inflammation. Progesterone also blocks the good effects of, of estrogen. So everything good that happens in the first half of the cycle sort of is either neutral or turns backwards in the second half of the cycle. Um, women's appetite tends to go up. They tend, that's when they get food cravings. Uh, and this is all, their, their metabolic rate goes up a little bit, but their hunger goes up uh, to a greater degree. And this is when their appetite and food intake will tend to go up. They tend to crave, you know, sugar and fat, just like the rest of us. Um, although that's actually cultural. In Spain, women tend to crave meat during that part of their cycle because when they're young, I have, presumably their moms tell them, this will make you feel better. In the U.S., they're told, eat chocolate. So there's a cultural component to that, but that's when the craving. So, And the, really the important week of that is that fourth week of the cycle, right? what's called the late luteal phase. That's when uh, premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual, ten premenstrual tension. I don't know if it's still called that anywhere in the world. If those symptoms are going to occur, that's the week it's generally going to happen, right? Some women will get blips in the first half of the luteal phase, but really traditionally, you know, symptoms can include uh, cramping. That's the woman's body preparing to uh, expel um, the uterine lining since pregnancy did not occur. Uh, mood changes. I will call that uh, mood lability uh, rather than mood swings because mood swings, uh, damn it, mood swings, <laughs> I did it again. Um, but typically you're going to see more, you know, women are going to, that's, if there's going to be mood swings, that's going to happen. Depression can occur. And in a small percentage of women, what's called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, women can become suicidal, right? Like at the extremes, there are women that physically cannot get out of bed during this week. Um, a nurse practitioner I know of, they, over here they deal with medication, like they'll have females on psychiatric medication and that one week of the month they have to put them on antidepressants because they get severely suicidal. So if, and there's other things that can occur, water retention, and we'll talk about that because the water issue for power lifters and any weight class athletes can be a huge problem on top of any changes in uh, 
mood, attitude, energy, coordination often goes down in that part of the cycle, right? So if you're doing a lot of, you know, complex exercise or one, like the injury risk may go up if you're doing one-legged plyometrics or whatever. So there's, so really if there's a typical worst week in the cycle, it's typically that fourth week. And then the late luteal phase winds down and menstruation starts. And usually within a couple of days, all that stuff, all the bad stuff from week four goes away and it starts all over again. So that's kind of the global Okay. The first, the first thought I had hearing you talk about that was how much variability you described in how people experience those swings. So between sort of each end of the spectrum, how much difference is there and how severe those changes are for women? It, okay. So I've had, I've had trainees and, and, and it's, it's interesting. If you talk to women about this, there will be a group of women that say, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get the PMS thing. I don't see what the problem is because they don't. Some women have no, no change whatsoever. I've had female athletes where literally it was a flat line in terms of their performance or so minimal as to be irrelevant. I had another trainee, which I think at the other extreme, and this took me a while to figure this out. She'd have a great week and then an okay week and then a good week. And then that fourth week, she couldn't pick up the bar like I, and, and like, you know, again, I was coming at it from a male perspective and guys are the same every day, right? We're the same macho assholes in the gym. Every single day we come in with no variability other than how much of an asshole we're going to be. And I couldn't get, I'm just like, lift the weight. What's your problem? I don't get, I don't, her coordination was down the toilet. Her strength was down. I had to give her machine work at 60% of maximum. So that was probably the, the biggest extreme I've seen. So from zero to may not be able, like, we didn't squat, we didn't pull, we didn't deadlift. She literally had to do just machine leg press, and I would just do And, and what was fascinating was once she started menstru- menstruating, it was like a damn switch flipped. And within two days, she hit a new PR. So It was, my, it was mind-boggling. That's, um, that actually mirrors an experience I had not two weeks ago with – one of my girls who competed at a powerlifting competition. She, mm-hmm. I had her on the Monday for a taper session. She competed on the yeah. Sunday um, following. Yeah. On the Monday for the taper session, she was hopeless. Her squat yeah. opener moved like a hard second. Her bench yeah. was terrible. And I was thinking, this is weird. She's made progress this block. This must be psychological. I've never like, mm-hmm. you know, she was crap. But I just sort of said, yeah. oh, you know, you're just tired. Rest up. You'll be fine for competition. Yeah. Two days out from comp, she messages me and says, I've just gotten my period for the first time in however long because, you yeah. know, I was on this birth control and blah, 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 sure. blah. And then comp day, she came in and she was actually really great. PB'd everything, yeah. looked good, and it was chalk and cheese five days apart. Yeah. yeah. And up I, until I, you just said that, I was still thinking it was psychological and she just needed a rest. Mm-hmm. It's, it is, it's like a biological, uh, flip switches. Um, I had the same athlete, um, for a while I had her doing like two a day trainings. We train in the morning and then train in the end. She, she was, and we'll talk about this in two in that it, her first workout, she just, it took her forever to warm up. I think it's many women, there's a difference in neurology and nervous system and the Chinese, the Chinese supposedly have talked about this. Like women take a little longer to warm up. You may find that they're just with heavy weights they're just not clicking as fast. Mm. For, for whatever reason. And as it turned out, the morning session was right at the very end of, of the month. She actually started menstruating at lunch 
and she had a PR that afternoon, right? And this wasn't a warm-up effect. I'd been doing this with her consistently before. It wasn't like I'd see a crap workout in the morning and then she'd kill it. It was, she looked, like you said, just like absolute, the morning workout was just a garbage fire. Just couldn't move anything, felt terrible, coordination was off. Some women, it'll take a couple of days. Like, it may not be immediately when, when menstruation starts, but pretty much once it does, you're back into, you know, the better part of the cycle in that regard. You know? right. Now, the researchers would point out, world records have been set in every phase of the cycle. However, a lot of this work is an endurance athletes, and this is a really critical issue. I'll read all these papers that are like, oh, there's no systematic effect of the menstrual cycle on performance, and they're looking at endurance sports. And this is a very different thing. Like, I don't know how much experience y'all have with endurance sports. Um, so most training in endurance sports is submaximal, right? You're working at 70%, right? So let's say you're, you're 100, like 100% is normal, and here's 70%. If your performance goes down 10% because you're whatever, you're tired or in that phase of the menstrual cycle, guess what? You can still do the workout. It'll hurt a little more. You can always grind it out. Right? And if you're training a bodybuilder and you're training in that 10 to 12 range, these changes may not change much, right? Because again, if you're at 70% of max, yeah, you're fine. Now you're at 75 to 80%. Your sets are harder, but they're doable. If yeah. you're a power lifter and you're trying to do triples at 90% or doubles at 90% and your old 100 has come down and is now 90 or worse, that is now an impossible workout. Mm. Right. So for endurance sports, right, like saw so your oh a marathon got set. I don't care. Like, well, I mean, I do. It's interesting. There's also a lot of self-reporting going on. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that is after the fact type of stuff. But yeah, in endurance sports, you can always I was an endurance sport. I didn't care how overtrained I was. I could always grind the miles. I, I shouldn't have, but I did. In the weight room, when you're that far off, you just can't you when you're working at 90% plus, you can't do the workout. So there is a big difference, I think, for strength and power sports. And I suppose that we're off topic for strength sports now, but I suppose for endurance sports as well, the differences in fuel utilization may matter a little less too. Because if you're at 70% and sure. you're oxidizing a little more fat, that's okay until you need a sprint, right? Yeah. Where they have seen differences is, so like in the luteal phase, right, you more insulin resistant, you're using more fat for fuel. For low intensity endurance stuff, that's fantastic. However, if you're trying to do a time trial, like an hour at your absolute top hour speed where you have to use a lot of carbohydrates, performance is hurt because mm. the body wants to use fat and it's not as efficient of a fuel. And if you give carbs during that time trial, so that is one of those cases that if you're doing high intensity endurance work at that hour limit mark, yeah, it makes a big debate. Like you said, at, at submaximal work and you're just out there spinning on the bike, it doesn't really make any difference. Um, but that does kind of point to, like if you're doing high intensity endurance work intervals or that threshold work or whatever, it probably does make more sense for that going to the first half of the cycle when your body is more primed to use carbohydrates more effectively and do low intensity endurance work um, in the second half of the cycle. Uh, and it's actually interesting, years ago, one of the first books I ever read on this topic was actually by two Australian female sports scientists. Um, I don't, I'd have to look it up to find the title of it, but, um, cause I mean, let's face it, the AIS is incredible. The, Australia has always been top, top of the field, um, for that sort of stuff. Um, so, and, and they broke it down by that. They were like, you know, the first two weeks and they were like, this is the time to focus on this, this, and this. And second half, 
put more focus here, depending, you know, based on that fuel utilization, mood. I mean, that's the reality. Um, as a therapist I knew put it one time, he's like, with women, I never know who's walking in on any given day. I don't know who this woman is going to be today. And I'm like, and if we're five minutes in and she's already broken down in, well, this is who I'm, this is who I'm treating today. Mm. Men are just consistent. And male coaches get really pissed off because they just, you're just weak. You're emotionally weak. Like, no, biologically, physiologically, her system is not at its best. Her motivation may be down. She's probably not in the mood to deal with your bullshit. And you might have to, you know, if, if she's not feeling it, like if a guy walked in, well, if a guy walked in and said, I feel like crap, you'd go suck it up and do the workout. But with women, I find that generally is not the most effective approach. And you might have to just be like, okay, we're going to do what we can do today. And if it's light workout, if whatever it is, you have to eat. But back to the variability question where we started with all of this. That's so individual, right? And that's the case. I'm going to talk about some generalities about where strength might, you know, change. The Russians supposedly did some of this. The Chinese used to do this, and then they said, oh, we don't take the menstrual cycle into account. And I think when you put enough drugs into the system, you are essentially training little men. That's a whole separate conversation, um, to be sure. But, yeah, like, you, you, will have, you have to treat every woman as an individual. But if you have a female trainee, and during that one week, her performance is in the shitter, if you don't take that into account, you are not coaching them effectively. Mm. You know, so that's the most – so what? What did I do with my, with my athlete? That one week out of the month, we just punted it. We went in, we goofed off on machines, we did some remedial work, whatever she could do. I just made it a deload because why, why wouldn't I? Like if she can't get any, any of the heavy work done anyway, let's just go do something else. And as soon as she started her period, we'd get right back into it. So, but if you've got a trainee that doesn't have any of these fluctuations, you don't have to worry about it at all. And some, most people will probably be in the middle. Right. So let's get a little bit deeper into the role of estrogen and progesterone. Um, yes. So first half of the cycle, follicular phase. We've got that right so yes. far? Correct. Yeah. Follicular good. phase, higher estrogen. What are yes. some of the physiological changes other than fuel utilization associated with estrogen? I think you've spoken somewhere previously about the influence of hormones on things like connective tissue laxity and stuff like that. Yes. Um, so that, and that's a weird one because... Uh, when you start looking at this, like researchers have had the hardest time figuring out what does what, because you've got two hormones that change week to week, overlap, and when you start like, okay, is it high estrogen, low progesterone, the combination, the ratio, and they ha you have to get really determined to figure out what's kind of what's doing what. Mm -hmm. So high levels of estrogen, so like I said, they are involved in muscular remodeling in a good way. They are anti-inflammatory. Like women just generally don't get sore. They just don't. You have to really pound and they'll get a little sore. Men will get a lot sore with that same leg. You really have to pound on men. Um, their differences in pain thresholds and stuff. But that big spike in estrogen right before ovulation, right? So estrogen kind of starts low, sweeps up, there's this big spike and then a crash. They do see higher risk of, you know, that. ACL injuries are endemic in women's sports. And there's a half, a, there's a dozen reasons why, but one of them is that estrogen does seem to negatively affect the ACL, like its strength and its structure. So, but it's, but it's delayed, right? It's not that estrogen, it's not right before ovulation. 
it's right after ovulation. So that big spike seems to have a little bit of a delayed effect. Because, I mean, let's face it, connective tissues are not adapting and turning over instantaneously. So there is a, a, a short period of time right after ovulation that there might be a higher risk for activities that are going to stress. You know, most of that stuff, team sports, things like, you know, soccer, rugby, uh, things of that nature, you know, the big issue for women tends to be, A, poor jumping mechanics, but also poor cutting mechanics. When they plant their foot, move sideways, the knee breaks in, the ankle rolls in, they've got the wrong kind of ACL notch, and they're ten like, everything just goes wrong, mm. and you can get these really devastating ACL injuries. For powerlifting, I don't know if it's so much of a big deal, you know, unless you're doing what my ex-training partner I used to call uh, squats with a double bounce. We joked about you just go down and go bounce, bounce up. Um, we just goofed off a lot. You know, like Olympic lifters will like, they, they think that elasticity is like, that helps. That helps to stand back up after the clean. And women are a little bit more elastic under submaximal intensities. But mm. if you're doing anything that's going to be stressing that knee joint, you might have to be a little bit more careful. There's also that severe loss of coordination that can occur during PMS week. I mean, women will lose their words. Uh, they were, and that's exactly how they'll describe it. Estrogen is critical for brain function and vocabulary. Women, that one week, women will, they'll, they, they can't think of the words they want. And it's just the, the estrogen crashing out at the end of the cycle before it comes back up. So yeah, so that, that would be another issue um, in terms of like estrogen potentially affecting uh, trainability. Um, or, or, or rather what you should be doing, right? If you're doing a lot of, again, any kind of one-legged jumping or cutting drills or side-to-side stuff, you might, you're going to be at a slightly elevated risk immediately after ovulation, just as you, those first, you know, that first week of the luteal phase. Right. So you've already sort of alluded to the idea of like front-loading training volume in the first yeah. two weeks. Um, how, in a practical sense, could we periodize around the menstrual cycle? Forgive the pun. Yeah. Um, how could we periodize yeah, right. around the menstrual cycle most effectively <clears throat> for powerlifting? And, you know, what are the practical trade-offs in doing right. that? Actually, random fun fact, and I forget where I read this. Apparently, at a conference 10 or 20 years ago on training periodization, someone stood up and said that the name should be changed because it was offensive to women. And that's not a joke. I couldn't find this word <laughs> right now. But someone actually argued to that point that, that we should change that terminology. Um, so, there's, so, there's competing, so there's competing stuff, I know, right? There's competing so stuff, going, right? All the front-loading work is usually with hypertrophy stuff, right? In the typical model, right, they'll take women and they'll do, they'll either train like five days a week in the first two weeks, and then they'll train once a week in the luteal phase or they'll train once a week in the follicular phase and five times each week in the luteal phase. Yeah, right. once a week in the follicular phase. And one study just spread out the same training. So it's 12 training sessions. It's either 10 and 2, 2 and 10, and one group dead, three across. And oh. what you typically see is that there is proportionally more adaptation when you front load. Now, this isn't to say that there's none in the second half. It's just you get like, it was like 30% more. Again, I don't, I'd have to go look through all the papers and like, I'm sure that they weren't highly trained. Like, I mean, the, the, the workout was like three sets of leg press, three sets of leg curl. Like don't, it's interesting. I don't know how much we can read into this, but certainly, like I said, infl inflammation will be down at it. But then on top of this, we have the potential for strength changes to occur. 
Again, we talked about huge variability. But if there's sort of a typical pattern, usually women will be strongest in week one, right, right after menstruation, like we talked about. There's that kind of like that switch that flips. Mm. They tend to be strongest then. For whatever reason, strength is maybe down a little bit in the, the second week of the follicular phase right before ovulation. And not universal. You know, the, the athlete I was is whatever, 5%. It was never much. Right after ovulation, strength may go back up again. And that may be due to that little testosterone spike. Right? Even though we're in the first half of the luteal, and we're talking about strength here, not necessarily adaptation or growth or anything, but that little spike in testosterone might be having an effect. It's two or three days. It might sort of short. And then if there's usually going to be a worse week of the month, it's going to be the fourth week of the cycle. Right? So, so we've kind of got these overlapping factors that in terms of loading intensity, you might be looking at the heaviest loading in week one, right? When women will typically be strongest. And, you know, and this, of course, varies based on your philosophy. Like if you're someone that likes to do a lot of work over 90%, well, put it there. That's when you're going to do, you know, and maybe even a higher frequency because like that front loading, they can handle more training. Estrogen's helping recover, control inflammation. That second week, they can probably still handle the same volume, but the intensity, the average intensity may need to become down if their strength is down a little bit. As you get into that third week, there's not going to be a lot as much muscle growth, progesterone inhibits protein synthesis. You don't have the estrogen effect. So like, it'll, but strength may be up again, but it may not be as good as week one. So you may be looking at, you know, a moderate volume at, so, you know, so let's say we went 90% plus, we went 80 to 85, week three, whatever, 85 to 90. And then as they get into week four, if they're the kind of, if they're an athlete just is going to have a shit week, you should just give them a deload, just give them a low volume, maybe some technical work, cut the intensity, maybe do some, you know, remedial other stuff, basically what they can do. But again, this just depends. Some women, you won't have to do that at all. Um, or you won't have to do the strength stuff, but you've still got the hormonal stuff where they can probably front load a little more volume in the first two weeks, maybe reduce it not focus quite as much on hypertrophy in the, the second two weeks because you're just not going to get the same growth benefits. And again, it's not zero, it's just lessened. So yeah, the immediate idea that came to mind as you were talking there was almost like a short linear cycle across four weeks where in the first couple of weeks you could give them quite a lot of volume and then in that third week where volume tolerance might be reduced, you could bump intensity a little bit, Correct. pull volume yes. right back and then take the fourth week as a deload and then repeat that type of cycle ongoing. Yeah, and I mean, it, and, it, and it ends up being like, then you get like, it's basically a, a four-week accumulation intensification, right? You've got two weeks of volume to kind of, you know, stimulate strength potential, and then you whatever, realize it or however, whatever terminology you want to use in that week three, and you've hit a new a peak, and then you drop off and give them a deload, and they're plenty well recovered mentally and physically for week one, and there you go. Um, like I said, it depends on the woman, and this is where as an athlete, as a female athlete or their coach, you have to really keep good records. You know, what I might even suggest if you want to get a global picture of this. So plan a month where you're going to give them essentially the identical workouts, same volume, same intensity, whatever you, whatever you want to do and get an RPE on those workouts every week, whether it's individual sets, session RPE, whatever you want to do. Right. So let's I mean, it doesn't even matter what you're giving them. Let's say we're going, whatever, six by three at 85%, whatever your, whatever your personal philosophy. You're just going to give them that across the month. So week one, 
maybe they report, okay, that was, that was an eight. Like that was a, you know, a tough workout, but doable. And then in week two, or say that's a seven in week one. In week two, all right, that was a nine. Like it was challenging. Like I got, did it, but it was harder. Week three, where strength may go up a little bit again. All right, that was an eight. All right, it wasn't as easy as week one, but it was doable. And then week four, well, that's an 11 and I can't do the workout. Or they might repeat, say that it's an eight, 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 or whatever, the, whatever it is. And what you've just established is what their pattern is. Hmm. So if you know that the workout that's a seven in week one becomes a 10 in week four, with whatever the variation is, that will at least give you a starting point for how to adjust the loading parameters. Um, depending on, again, where you want to keep them. If you're trying to keep them in a seven, eight range every week, you will need to adjust week four down significantly in terms of the intensity. If you just want to give them a deload, then screw it and drop 25% and cut the volume and just do some technical work or goof off or prehab or whatever you want to do. Um, but yeah, but it's just, it's a lot, a lot of it is just keeping records to figure out, like you said, I mean, that lesson you just learned. And a lot of this is accidental. The observation I made with, okay, morning was crap and then started and okay, well, and then it's like, all right, this week was crap, started her period and oh my God, her strength would just go boop, boop and she hit a PR and that was like, okay, I finally got the pattern. It took me way, way longer than it should have, but good record keeping will give you an insight of what's changing in that regards or if it's changing at all. So I'm going to struggle to express this question because so much is bumping through my head. Where do the differences in strength actually arise from between the weeks? Are they, are they happening at the muscular level or are these issues with like, you know, motor control, something to do with the nerves themselves? Where down the chain is this occurring? That's a really good question. I don't think I have, I don't know that I have an answer, but I'll think about it as, as I start a, a babble. Because again, we have this thing that the studies are kind of like, well, there's no systematic difference. Part of the problem, frequently they're using just goofy, irrelevant, like, oh, we tested hand grip strength. And it's like, hooray, like nothing that's really valid. And some, but we're also, this is a problem with studies. We're averaging results, right? Mm -hmm. So if you take 20 women and 10 have no change, and five feel fantastic, and five feel terrible, the average will say there's no significant change, but that completely belies the individual results. Um, and there's not, you know, there's still working out a lot of the differences in, you know, there's differences in central fatigue, and it, if I got into it, it's probably estrogen or progesterone, I would, I suspect at the brain level, if it has to do with anything, um, but it could, it could be, I mean, fatigue can be anywhere in that range. I don't know if it's affecting necessarily, you know, the contractile function of the skeletal muscle. Um, I actually just, I don't know, honestly. It's something I now will have to go, go figure out. But getting into this. In the book. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, the research simply isn't there. Like there's still, it's only, you know, women are still only represented about 25% in sports science research. It's really, for a number of reasons, some, some good, some not. Um, but, but it's, they're really just sort of figuring a lot of this stuff out now to figure out these differences. And isn't, isn't it partly the case as well that researchers go, well, shit, if we have women, we have this extra variability to account for. So we're just going to have an all male sample. Oh, that's exactly it. That's a huge part of it because studying women is 
infinitely more complicated because if you want to do it right, you have to control for the phase of the menstrual cycle. Now, early studies didn't. Back in the 70s, nobody even thought about this. And they drew some really stupid, stupid conclusions from it in terms of, because in, in some parts of the cycle, like physiologically, women and men are very similar, and in others, they're not. And this is the other part. If you want to study something in women, you have to study, you have to compare the first half of the cycle to the second half of the cycle. You want to compare them to men, really you want to measure the men once because the men aren't going to change, but now we've got these three variables determining where a woman is in her cycle. They used to do it having women self-report, count days, totally inaccurate. You're looking at daily hormone tests or vaginal ultrasound. It's really, really, really technically daunting. Um, I spoke to, I want to say it was Eric Trexler a few years ago at a conference, and he was doing a study in women. And he was doing an exercise test. And one of the subjects came in and said, bad news, I started my period a day early. He goes, cool, see you in a month. We cannot test you because you are now in a completely different physiological state. It's really, really technically daunting uh, to be done. I mean, other reasons are just sheer, you know, whatever, the white male, hegemonical, patriarchal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of it is just, it was male researchers studying men because men were the only ones in sport. Uh, a friend of mine online was like, how come I don't see any women, female researchers? I go, because you're not reading about research on women. The female researchers are doing research on female athletes. You're not seeing their names because he's like, oh my God, I'm sexist, aren't I? I go, a little, but, but that is honestly it. Typically, I mean, you study what's relevant to you and it's, it's mainly female researchers that are doing this work. But it is, it's really, really, really technically daunting. I guess. On top of everything else going on. The reason I asked um, that initial question where we just started babbling about sort of where yeah. along the chain um, these differences in strength arise is because based on what you were saying earlier, I would expect the differences in performance across the cycle to sort of flatten out as you move from the low rep, high intensity stuff to more into the bodybuilding ranges of Agreed. performance. Right? And that, that sort of gels a little bit with my experience with my clients as well, where often their top sets are uh, you know more variable but i would see that in male clients too but then once sure. they get into doing a five by five at 70 percent or something everything yeah. sort of just goes back to okay and the difference between a good day and a shit day is just yeah um, yeah a little bit yeah i agree um yeah. yeah which i think would tend to implicate probably central factors probably something whether it's at the motor cortex level or something you know excitation of spinal nerves or something along those lines. It's been a while since I've looked into fatigue and there's a ton of research on this and on, on the issue of like, do women fatigue less than men? And the answer is sometimes. Um, and it's it sort of, this sort of ties into this, I think in that when the work is below a certain intensity in terms of being easier, right? And that cutoff in, in the weight room is about 80%, right? So what do they do? They'll have men and women do whatever percentage and see how many total reps they can do, right? And at 80%, at least in untrained, it's about the same. Men and women can do about eight. And as you get to closer to 100%, it's not that much different. Now, when you go lighter than that, women rapidly outperform men on a rep count. And I mean, it's not even... It's ridiculous. Like, it depends on the exercise and what you're doing. But, like, at 60%, a man might do 16, and a woman will do 34 repetitions. Somewhere I've got this ridiculous paper, and at, like, 60%, the men did 
25 reps on the leg press and the women did 126 or something oh, just like brutally <laughs> like I don't I don't know that that's consistent with the real world because it, it wasn't like they weren't controlling for depth and stuff like that but once you get to submaximal intensities the difference is women just do you know and a lot of this work uses low intensity isometric work and women will outperform men like they'll they'll hold this stuff for double double the the duration that a man can hold but as soon as you get to a higher intensity that goes away um there's yeah, a couple um, of studies by hey, go ahead i was gonna say um my girlfriend and i were similar level powerlifters and we did a competition um a couple of years ago <clears throat> um an amrap at 70 percent on, on all three lifts yeah and she absolutely smoked me yeah like, exactly absolutely smoked me um, and you see that, so there's a Hakinian who's been doing research, Eastern European or European guy. He took men and women, and the first study, they did 10 sets of 10 at 70%. And the women recovered incremental, like I know, right? They, they, <laughs> the women recovered enormously faster. He then had them do, I think it was on a squat machine, but it was like, it's either 10 or 20 singles at 100%, which is nuts. They, they do this stuff all the time. And there was really no significant difference. You see the same if you look at interval work for high intensity, like for doing intervals that are like 30 to 60 seconds long, women generate like half as much acid. They don't fatigue as much. They don't use as much glycogen. But when you're looking at maximal sprint work, the differences basically go away. And that's kind of goes to exactly what we're talking about. Women's volume tolerance for lower intensity work and the reps they can get, you know, it's like, again, uh, something I've been complaining about for, or you can see it in the gym, right? Give a man a set of 15, even close to limits. And he has to lay down for about 10 minutes. Mm. I've been there, right? Give a woman a set of 15 to that same level of fatigue, 30 seconds later, she's ready to go again. Like women in, on leg training day, it's ludicrous to watch because they'll do a heavy set of, or not heavy-ish set of 15, rest 15 seconds, and they can just do that all damn day every day. And a man can't. A man does that, and he's got to lay down for five or ten minutes. Um, and even that sort of ties into some of what we're talking about. Well, so again, so submaximal, but when you get into that 80% of max plus, some of the differences go away. Right now, I do still think you probably notice that women probably still do recover. Like, well, I'll bring his name up. Says Mark Ripito did write one thing that I agree with. <laughs> that's huge. Uh, that's the I mean, soundbite I'm going to promote this week. Fantastic. <laughs> and which was that a one rep max for a woman is a different neurological event than for a man. And in that, he is totally correct. Right, a woman can do a one RM and probably be ready to repeat that relatively quickly. A man who does a true one RM, he's gonna need five or 10 minutes. And there are a couple, I think there's a few factors here. Um, and I remember Eric Helms and I talked about this a few years ago. And he, like in his experience, women, it takes them two or three years to be able to express a, two one R, a true one RM. And I don't know if that's psychological, neurological, I don't know what the reason is, but you know, men, we're intensity based hardheads. We can put it like there's a difference there. Um, women have the, the issue, especially on squat bench and deadlift, you know, the upper there's women's shoulder girdles tend to be proportionally less muscular and weaker than their lower bodies. Men tend to be a little more balanced. Women's squats are often limited by what they can shoulder. 
their deadlifts are limited by what their upper butt, what their shoulder girdle can stabilize. And women's benches are typically really bad proportionally because they just don't have as much muscle mass. So I think some of what's going on is one RM for a woman is probably more limited by her upper body than by her legs. Right. The Chinese have found this for Olympic, like female Olympic lifters, Chinese, they can just do, they can do reps at 90% all day, every day. And the men get tight because the men are lifting heavier weights. Women are limited by their shoulder girdle. What they can stand up with is way more than what they can put overhead. So I think for, and, and part of the difference in terms of this fatigue thing does have to do with absolute strength levels. Because when you take men and women that are strength match, which usually means taking trained very trained women and very untrained men, a lot of this goes away. So a lot of this is purely a poundage issue. And some of the work has shown that the closer women get to men's strength levels, the more similar they are in terms of their fatigue profile. So it is true, and that, that actually gets into central versus peripheral fatigue. I'll wind it back to your question, give me another couple hours, I'll get there, <laughs> is what they find is that if they, is, is men tend to generate more central fatigue than women, women generate more peripheral fatigue. And it's really just a function of the absolute loads being used. Because think about it, if you have a man who's squatting 600 versus a female who may be squatting 250 or whatever the numbers are, there is a, just a different systemic fatigue. But if you had a man squatting the same 250, it probably wouldn't be, because it's not as hard, it's not as tiring. So men, men tend to generate far more central fatigue um, whereas women, it does tend to be somewhat more peripheral. So I think when you're dealing with female powerlifters, yes, some of this does go away. Women typically do handle, I think, a little more volume at higher intensities. They tend to recover faster between repetitions. That can be variable, depends on strength. I don't know if that's what you've traditionally seen. Um, they may do better with a little bit higher free. They can Because again, when you're squatting, you know, 200 pounds, 90-ish kilos, 95 kilos or thereabouts, that's a very different global stress, systemic stress, than doing 200 kilos. The, man is, the male athlete is not going to be able to come back and do that in two days, where she probably can. So I think there, there's that sort of, this is all sort of tying together into this broader picture. Bodybuilding and physique training, which I still will maintain, is just not that hard. Like, Get it? I'm like I know people overcomplicate it, but like programming, physique training, really not that hard. I'm sorry, it's just really not. <laughs> Comparatively speaking, to strength power sports, you're dealing with a lot of different dynamics uh, in terms of weak points and neuro neurological and psychological, and you know, women depending on their personality, where there's also I think more variability don't always have the psychology to push heavy weights. Now, admittedly, these aren't the ones that typically go into powerlifting. But, you know, one thing you might you probably see online, there's like, I call it, in the 90s, the riot girls, way before your time, it was kind of one of those the sort of early, you know, I'm woman here, which I'm all for, don't mishear me. But you've got these women online that love pushing heavy fives, they love pushing heavy triples. They tend to have a certain personality type, they have a certain body type, right? Narrower hips, their knees don't break in as much, they are built for this, in a way that not all women are. Women who have wider hips have a lot of problems keeping their knees out. If they've got long let like they may not have the psychology. They may just want to do sets of 12 to 15 and do physique, and that's perfectly fantastic. The women who come into powerlifting, I think there's some selection for it. But even so, men are exposed to a different set of activities when younger, and we're inherently biologically more competitive and we're socioculturally more competitive. Women, I think it does take some time to 
engender for poor choice of words, to, to learn that, to sort of learn how to compete. Women are frequently raised to be worried more about the social structure, right? So you take them to meet and they don't want to destroy their enemies because they don't want to upset the social structure, right? Mm -hmm. Actually an article I read years ago and it was like, train like a woman, women are very process oriented, but compete like a man because you have to be, you know, you can still be friendly and supportive, but at the end of the day, your competition is the enemy. <laughs> And a lot of women, that may not be there inherently or may not have been sort of socioculturally programmed in them. So I'd love to, I'd love to actually get back to, back to that discussion in mm -hmm. just a moment um, because yeah. I think it's really interesting. But there's, while we're still talking a little bit about um, performance profiles across rep ranges, I recall yeah. you saying somewhere at some stage that women probably need to train at higher intensities to maximize hypertrophy than men. Um, am I taking you out of context there or I remember what I would have said? I don't know that it was necessarily in relation to hypertrophy so much, but one thing I've seen, and there's another, uh, she's a PhD. She's actually done some really interesting research on squatting. Megan, God, I forget what her last name is. And I don't, I, regardless, I don't remember. Um, I do think, I think probably what I said was, okay, men are good at intensity right? We can go in and grind ourselves out. Some of that's biological, some of that's cultural. And where I think, you know, whereas men often don't have the volume tolerance, right? Because we push hard and because we are using heavier absolute loads. And that's why, you know, uh, sometimes for men, it's probably better to, I think that's why a lot of male powerlifting systems can get by with just volume at a lower intensity. Whereas a lot of women find that doesn't work. And what Megan, it's going to kill me that I can't remember her name. She said she tried the classic powerlifting system. They didn't work for her. And she found that she needed a more consistent diet of higher intensity. And I think that's probably, I don't remember saying it's specific to hypertrophy. Um, I think it was probably more to do with a lot of women don't push themselves anywhere close. It, it, it was probably more relative intensity. And that's, you just see women faffing about in the gym and working, I mean, men do it too. They've done stuff where self-selected loads by male and female trainees are like a four RPE. It's like 55% of max. It's nowhere close to as heavy as it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, it's very common with women, but in, in, in the context of powerlifting, there, are those, there is a neurological difference. There's something going on there. And women not only, I think, can handle uh, a, a higher diet of higher intensity work, but I think they may need it in terms of, it's basically train what you're bad at, right? So men, higher to, like endurance sports, men higher top speeds can generate higher intensities. They don't have the endurance of women from a fuel utilization standpoint. Women have better at low intensity endurance. And I think it's actually funny, all this fat adaptation stuff that the male endurance athletes are trying to, they're trying to make their physiology more like women's whether they know it or not. Mm. And you should point that out to them at every opportunity. Because <laughs> I think uh, but it's true, right? Women, the, the few sports women have outperformed men is always in these crazy ass ultra endurance events because they don't get as much muscle damage. They're not as heavy. They're more elastic. They use more fat for fuel. Male endurance athletes are trying to cheat. So they need to do more endurance work. Women don't have the high intensity outputs. And I know I have read Kenyan female runners do proportionally more high intensity work. And I think it's similar in the weight room, right? Women can go all day, every day for a pizza to 10 and they won't even get tired. Like even if it's 10 reps on a 12 RM 
like they'll just go all day every day and a man will just crap out after three or four sets. So in that sense, and I think in powerlifting too, below a certain intensity, women just go all day and never get tired. Whereas a guy eventually, he's doing repeat triples. He's gonna, you know, six sets is gonna be a super heavy workload. So men probably need to do keep the intensity under control because they break if they don't, right? There's a reason West Side guys are all injured because they max every week, right? Men just break when they train that hard that long. <clears throat> it's they, good when you subtly take jabs at other coaches and things on our podcast because that's the type of shit that gets shared. So yeah, have a no, go I whenever know. you want. I, I mean, don't, again, don't get me wrong. Westside brought a lot to the table, but their whole thing about we max every week to be ready. We're ready for a meet at all times. Are there surprise powerlifting meets that I'm not aware of? <laughs> like, do you get up on a Monday and they go, there's a meet on Saturday. Like, nobody does that. And they were all <laughs> in all the time. And yes, do you need to do the high intensity work? Sure. Do you need to fix the quick points? Sure. Do you need to max every week? No. And they so, were all fucking <clears throat> injured. <laughs> on, the, on the topic of training what you're bad at um, to probably to corroborate what you just said, you'd be aware of Mike Teixeira, the powerlifting coach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Really clever guy. And one of, oh, yeah. one of his things he did a couple of years ago was project momentum. The first run of that where he, okay. um, he got people to do a one RM, a starting one RM. And then I think an AMRAP at around 70% or 80% or something. And he classified okay. people into people who, had a sharp drop-off in rep performance and a less sharp drop-off. So people who are good at reps and who are good at intensity yeah. comparatively. Okay. And then he put people in groups with training programs that either had them doing more rep work or more high-intensity work. Yes. And your intuitive conclusion might be that if you get randomized into the group that suits your abilities, you would do better. But yeah. I think he actually did find the opposite. He found that if you were good at high-intensity work, training low-intensity work, got you yeah. better, faster than training, more high-intensity work and vice versa. Yeah, I can believe that. And probably part of the reason would be novelty as well, right? Because if like if you're good at pushing heavy loads, then you're going to be like, fuck doing eights because it's hard and vice right. versa. Um, but I think that was what he found. So that immediately that's rings true what you said. Yeah. And, and that's just, I mean, that's a general training principle is like, you know, tra- train what you're bad at. But I do think there are often these sort of syst- systemic and systematic sex-based differences that, that do tend to show up. Again, I know, I, I know there's plenty of women that train, you know, according to very traditional systems, and I think there's often a number of things going on. One is, again, as women's strength levels go up, this does change, right? A, a woman benching 50 kilos is very different than a woman benching 150 kilos. Now, admittedly, that 150-kilo female bencher is rare, but they're out there. And I, I, think, I think there's... So there's, you've got that going on. And that's, again, what the research shows is that frequently as women get more closer to men in relative strength levels, some of these differences go away. I think when you're working with women of that strength level, I think you're also looking at a biological propensity that is not always present, right? Obviously, sports selects for the best. You know, when I hear a story, I saw something again, came across my Facebook feed, and it's one of the top female powerlifters. She's like, yeah, I was deadlifting 315, you know, basically 100 and, yeah, 40 kilos or so. Yep. You know, I was, I was within six months of training. Well, <laughs> most guys couldn't do that, right? Like, this is a genetic specimen. It could be fiber typing. It could be any number. It could be nervous system. It's usually mechanics, usually women who are built with, you know, short femurs and 
you know, super short and, you know, uh, Susie, uh, Matt Gary, I want to say wife, same thing. She's like, yeah, I've been training for a year and I didn't know how much, how good my numbers were because she is built to power lift. Mm -hmm. I think you get into the polycystic ovary syndrome issue, which I kind of brought up briefly at the start. It's an extremely common, uh, reproductive dysfunction. And it's typically associated with several things. The first is either a lengthened or absent menstrual cycle, right? Lengthened means 35 to, a cycle between every 35 to 90 days. It's called oligomenorrhea. They can also be amenorrheic, that we're less than three cycles per year or zero. Uh, you typically see uh, um, insulin resistance is very common. A masculinization is also, and, and some, some indication of hyperandrogenism. It could be external. It could be body hair, acne, oily skin. Um, there's even possibly like a linkage like this will typically be somewhat of a more like a tomboyish personality, like in terms of that. But also there was typically clinical hyperandrogenism driving that bus. So and there's may I interrupt, Lyle? Yeah, one second. go ahead. Um, so... So in PCOS, you're seeing this long or absent menstrual cycle. Are they kind yes. of like jammed in week one of the luteal phase hormonally? It's, or? it's bizarre. It's, it's almost, if you, if you, if when you look at the hormonal structure, it's almost random. Some days will be identical to the, 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 the regular menstrual cycle, and other days the hormones are just all over the map. There's absolutely no structure to it, and there's, so there's really no way to know. And so one of the things I had to do in this book was to try to group these by category, right? So I'm like, all right, here's the follicular phase physiology. Here's the luteal phase physiology. There are things such as birth control, PCOS, amenorrhea that put you into one of these other categories. Now, one of the things I said about luteal phase is insulin resistance. Typically, the PCOS woman is insulin resistant, and that's due to the testosterone, actually. So I tend to, from a diet, et cetera, standpoint, kind of put them in the luteal phase. But from a training perspective, none of that's probably going to hold because their estrogen and progesterone levels are all over the map. And the testosterone frequently overwhelms that. Because what you're seeing, right, so the average woman, normal testosterone levels are 30 to 70 nanograms per deciliter. It, it goes up, it's like one, up to 1.5, it's not even that high. Yeah, 1.5 nanomoles per liter. I don't know what units y'all use over there. In PCOS, it can be up to double that. You may see 100 versus 30, you may see up to 150 nanograms per deciliter. That is a staggering advantage. And they find this super commonly in strength and power sports. No big surprise because there is not only, there's a selection process. You keep doing what you're good at. They originally found it in swimmers. Swimming is very much power sport. Um, amusingly, there's this super old Russian paper I found. And they use what's called, it's called the BEM gender inventory. And it's this old questionnaire that basically represents sociocultural gender norms and you just check it off do i feel this or this this or this and it's like you're masculine you're feminine you're needed or androgynous and it's very rough i wouldn't put a lot of a lot of, of uh, stock in it as a clinical tool what the russians did is that they then associated that with which athletes ended up in which sports and they found that typically women who were higher on the feminine end ended up in things like ballet figure skating which makes perfect logical sense. They also found that they had the most variability in their training and the hormones. Uh, 
And then they found at the other extreme, the women in the strength sports tended to be more likely to be on the masculine end of things. And you're typically seeing elevated, it, not, if, even if there's not frank hyperandrogenism, you know, at, at the 150 range, they found some women that's about 30% higher makes them more anabolic. Their bones are denser, their muscles recover faster. And the higher a woman's testosterone is, the more she can essentially be trained like a man because the, the effects of the testosterone are very much overwhelming that variability and may even be shutting it down completely. Of course, you've also got the reality and elite strength power sport of steroid use, right? We know that from the Germans. Anybody who thinks it's not going on now is out of their mind. So you've also got that to factor in where you've got, if you've got a female athlete benching 200 kilos who's coming out of a particular you know, powerlifting team or system, well, the realities are that you're probably not dealing with a, I'll use the word normal for lack of anything better, but you're probably not dealing with a stereotypical feminine hormonal profile. So that cha- and that changes the dynamics. We know that testosterone affects the nervous system. And actually, that goes back to your original question. Where's the difference? And that's probably, testosterone's probably a big part of it. You know, that spike in testosterone and ovulation, it is having, we know there's an effect on the central nervous system, on the peripheral nervous system. I don't know what estrogen and progesterone do off the top of my head, but it's all, it's all related. But I think it, at lower levels of strength, at intra-trajectory levels with women, Higher frequencies tend to work better, probably pushing the intensity. Some of it I do think is just honestly teaching them to express that intensity. And it's just not going to break them to the same degree. A woman deadlifting 150 kilos, it's not a man deadlifting 300 who can't do it that often. Um, So I I think, but again, it is individual, but I think that would be a fairly, and I'm sure if you had a male power lifter who was a relative beginner and not lifting and same thing, he's not going to need as much time to recover because the absolute loads just aren't there. He may still better do better with volume, but he can probably still, you know, even do uh, Matt Gary, he's the U S he does a lot of work with, with Mike Mm -hmm. Tuchere and I like Matt a lot. And he, you know, he talks about that and his general template is, you know, they squat twice a week, they deadlift typically twice a week, they bench three to four times a week, bench typically recovers faster. With women, I'm sorry, you've got a woman benching 45 to 50 kilos, she could probably bench every day. I've actually got one very silly study that I don't believe at all that found that women were recovered from a heavy bench workout four hours later. (laughs) Women recover faster, I don't buy that for a damn, like I don't believe that for a second. Um, It is quicker, it's not that quick. But, you know, it, proportionally, that's how the lifts work. But for women, it's probably even proportionally a little bit faster. And certainly he's, he's mentioned that, you know, in regards to his wife. Um, and I think this all just, it all sort of ties together with the differences in fatigue, fatigue profile, physiology, neurological factors, um, all of this sort of stuff. So, Cool. So we sort of started talking about PCOS and um, yeah. hyperandrogenism. Oh, right, and- yes how the, yeah, how the sports select for that. And again, I was fascinated. I was reading about, I think it's two to four digit ratio. Is it the mm-hmm. length on um, the length of that and how that can, that can indicate something like um, the, is it prenatal androgen exposure and yes. then your um, proclivity towards certain activities. So do you want to just talk yes. about that? Yeah. So, so what it, the two to four digit ratio, like you said, it's the ratio of the second and second and the fourth finger. So second being pointer and fourth being ring or vice versa? 
I know it's been a while since I've looked, but it is a rate. And, and there's basically what there are stereotypical male and female ratios, right? And I can tell you factually, um, I can't. And it basically, if one, I, I, God, it's been so long since I've looked. But what should be longer, isn't it? Yeah, and that's and, and what it is indicating. You can go just look at this online on Wikipedia. Is prenatal and prenatal androgen exposure, right? So during during fetal development, if you're exposed to proportionally more androgens, it has a masculinizing effect on the entire physiology, including the brain, including bone structure, which is where this kind of shows up. And they have shown it to be linked to an absolutely ungodly number of things in terms of sports performance. The early studies related it to sexual preference, and that's a little bit more contentious because of the data set they use. But like in both men and women, it tends to be related to a whole host of things like that. I seem to recall one study that in women that had the masculine two to four digit ratio, if they injected them with a the testosterone, they got a lot of aggression. But if they didn't have the, the, the masculine, if they had the feminine two to four digit ratio, the testosterone did nothing. And that's because the testosterone was impacting their brain, which was already slightly pre-masculinized. There's data tying the two to four digit ratio to tomboyism. And possibly one of my favorite studies ever, if you ever want to really piss some people off, they found that in uh, activist feminists, right? And this is in the US, this is huge, right? The women who basically, you know, we can and will do anything men can do, have a masculinized two to four digit ratio. In a very real sense, their men, their brains and their entire physiologies and everything about them is to a degree, and this is just gonna get me into trouble, to a degree masculinized. So of course this is where they are at. And I'm not saying that's wrong or right. Like, please don't mishear me. I'm not trying to dismiss this. It is what it is. But for every woman like that, there is another woman with the feminine two to four digit ratio that is perfectly happy adhering to, you know, quote unquote, stereotypical gender norms about like, and it's all, I'm not saying any of it is better or any worse anymore than I'm saying that the women who want a power lift are better than the women who want to do physique. It's more the issue of, let's face it, every guy you've ever met, unless he's very unique, wants to go into the gym and max and be strong and big to hopefully impress his buddies compete with his buddies and get chicks. I've, unless you're older, I've never met the guy ever who didn't want to go in the gym and lift all the way. And that's in two decades of, of coaching off and on and th three decades of being in the gym. With women, the variability, it, they can be all over the map. They can be from, I want a power lift. I, you know, I have had a trainee one time. The best way to motivate her was go, you're too weak to lift that. And she would never quit. We would just, she'd been a boxer. So of course, right? She had the psychology to just go in and we would just butt heads in the gym. Her training partner was completely unlike that. And I had to handle her very differently in the gym. Like I said, men, it's easy, right? You want to motivate a dude? Eh, it's a matter. Do you leave your purse at home? You just challenge their manhood, right? It's super easy to get men fired up. I don't recommend that with female trainees by and large. They don't think that's that funny. And it doesn't work. But again, by and large, are there women that that probably will work on? Sure. But women, I do think, show a lot more variability in this regard. So going back to the hyperandrogenism, the two to four digit ratio, I'm willing to bet if you look at, you know, a, a majority of the women, well, I take that back. Back in the day, there's no doubt about this, right? You look at Jan Todd, you look at the early female powerlifters, I guarantee you they probably had 
overt PCOS, hyperandrogenism. They were built for this sport, and they fought their way in because they weren't going to take no for an answer. The sports change now. I don't know about it in Australia. In the U.S., women's powerlifting is exploding. Women's Olympic lifting is exploding. I do think we're now seeing more women coming into the sport that may not fit this gross stereotype that I'm describing. But I do think that if you look at the higher performing women, certainly, you're going to see an overall more masculine body type, right? You just have to be. You can't have wide hips and knees break in. You're not going to be a good deadlifter. I'm sorry. You're just not, right? You can't have that, that sort of anatomy and really be that successful. Um, and it's interesting in that regard. Chinese Olympic lifting coaches, they look for girls with characteristics, even at a young age, that suggests that they're probably going to grow up and have elevated testosterone. They look at things like breast size, tricep skin fold. They know the characteristics because these women are more highly trainable. They tend to be more aggressive. Um, one study I have actually showed that, well, two, a couple that are interesting. Women with higher free testosterone are more likely to be found at a higher level of sport compared to club athletes. It was, I think it was rugby, and there's a sport that, let's face it, that does not attract that does not attract the traditional female athlete. Mm. Female rugby players are terrifying, and I mean that in a complimentary sense. I've watched female rugby; it's awesome. These women will get concussions and go back into the field. Like, but I'm sorry, you have to have a certain psychology to even want to try that sport. And another one I found: women with higher levels of testosterone are more likely to select heavier workouts and be more competitive and be more aggressive. I know people like to go, oh, it's all just sociocultural programming, but it's not. It's just not. So I think at the higher levels of powerlifting, I'm willing to bet you could, and, and honestly, it would be a good screening tool. If an athlete comes to you and if he's got, or he or she has, you know, a certain, well, if it's a male that has the feminine two to four digit ratio, they should just go pick up ping pong. I never should have pursued sport as hard as I did. Because I do, I have, I have like, I have the female uh, ratio, which which tells me that it's, it's weird because you get the way you tilt your hand kind of changes it. But I've got my, you can see my index finger is taller than that. And I think that is the male ratio. Where This is an audio only podcast. But uh, yeah. whatever. Where the ring, sorry, where the ring finger is, is taller than the, than the index finger. But regardless, go to Wikipedia. It's got the charts and shows which is which. But mm. like that would probably be a decent screening tool to see whether, especially more of a male athlete is going to be worth your time. Or for strength power sports, throw him into running. He'll be good at that. So if I brought together all of like why I think all of that is important. Yes. One, it comes back to the competition atmosphere comment you made probably 20 minutes yes. ago now. Um, yeah. Where like women's powerlifting is exploding in Australia, um, which is again why I think this is a really interesting podcast for us to have. But part of what has made it so good is that the atmosphere at local competitions is very participational. And there are absolutely oh, yeah. women who are super competitive. Alex's girlfriend, Chrissy, will compete and possibly win at nationals this year. And she goes mm -hmm. in really wanting to compete and win. And, you know, a couple of her friends are the same. And a lot of the higher level women, Liz Craven, possibly the best powerlifter in Australia right now, is super yes. competitive. But at the local level, I train with and train some girls who are, you know, wanting to show up, have a good time with their friends, lift some weights, get personal best for themselves. And the fact that the atmosphere is very supportive and it's almost like yes. a non-competitive competition environment where everyone <coughs> is celebrated, I think has yes. done a lot to help grow the sport for women. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry, Absolutely. you go on. 
Yeah, well, I think, I think A, powerlifting, in my experience, is one of the more supportive uh, sports. And I think I, I, what I usually see, the smaller a sport is, the more inclusive they try to be. Strong men takes it to another. They're so desperate to get people into their sport, <laughs> they will just, like, bend over backwards to help you out. I mean, mm-hmm. there are mullet heads in every sport, whereas, you know, you want the real elitist pricks, physique athletes. I mean, oh, whatever. Sure. I love it. I love body. I love the problems associated with bodybuilding. But man, you want to talk about an unfriendly, exclusive activity. It's the physique activities, powerlifting, Olympic lifting too. They want, they just want more people in the sport. Mm. And what I've noticed is it's true in general. You can, you can come out and just like a woman can come out or a man. And just the fact that you showed up, you will get credit for that. Right. Yeah, because how many people do we know who are at the gym going, want to get my bench up first because they're afraid to go put it on the line and fail. Woman can go up there and squat the bar and she will just get like a damn near because she had the guts to show up. Yeah. And like, like you mentioned, if you turn up to a physique show with a terrible, people would ridicule you. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, And women take that to another level. Again, sort of since women are jet, I saw it described once as women are raised within the web, like they're raised in more of a group dynamic, whereas men, we just want to compete and own. Like our goal is to just crush everybody. Uh, and I, it, there's actually the federation that, that my lifter competes in has started holding a women's only meet because there's finally enough lifters to have it. Because up until the last few years, if you had five or ten women, they would show up. It would often wasn't as supportive just because men are men being men, right, whenever. And, and this women's only event, the vibe is completely different because you will have women that are competing for whatever, the total or what. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. They give away these, these princess tiaras to the best lifters on Wilkes and open in the end. Like, whatever. They're awesome. Like, what, whatever works. But even the women that are just trying to destroy their competition, they are so happy for anybody to succeed with a lift. Like, everyone is just, again, there's a couple mullet heads that's changed. But by and large, women, when you take men out of the equation, the dynamic changes completely. Powerlifting is already really good in that regards, but like women's powerlifting is even better. Mm. Um, I also think it's funny, and I just like to throw this out there. <laughs> Female powerlifters, I'll say it's hilarious. And I don't mean that to be dismissive. Female powerlifter will hit a PR, will jump up and down and squeal like Chun-Li in Street Fighter, and then go <laughs> jump on her coach and give him a leg wrap hug. Men who make a PR, will scowl roughly 10% less. <laughs> if they spot, like, right, I would pay. I told somebody this in a meet, and I didn't stay along. I go, you know what? I would pay. I would pay to see a super heavyweight lifter make their final deadlift attempt and go jump hug their coach. Just once. I just want to see it happen once, and I don't think I ever will. But it is, it's just a different, it's a different dynamic. But there, the, the acceptance that has occurred in that sport and actually, and this is a whole separate thing, and we'll get back to the actual topic. I think this is where, like, Instagram and Facebook, as bad as that stuff can be, as nonsensical as the crap on Instagram can be, has made women realize that they can be strong as hell. And, I mean, I hate to put it in these terms, but to quote-unquote, you know, maintain their femininity, right, that's long been the fear, is mm-hmm. that they wouldn't be accepted and that they would become men. And they're seeing women, and I mean, there's women who are doing strongmen that couldn't give three-fifths of a shit either way. They just want to show up and be awesome. 
but yeah. it's become so accepted. I'm also seeing masters powerlifting and masters female powerlifting really exploding because I think we have a generation of women that were raised saying girls can't do that and seeing that they can and they're coming out and going, damn, this is awesome. So yeah, it's, it's the same thing, but the problem, which is what's driving all this, this whole podcast, most of the information is based on men. Mm. And, I think and there are systematic differences. I think it's great as well that women can or women do now instead of thinking not only I can't do this and that it'll make me like a man, they can now say I can do this. And when they do it, instead of thinking of their body as just valuable in how it looks, they start to think, you know, this is a powerful body that can achieve X, Y, and Z, you know, and I think, I think that's just one of the most fantastic things about the sport. Um, but anyway, yeah. let's get back to the topic. Yeah, let's get itself. back to the topic of this. Um, um, which was the next question that we have that we haven't spoken about is a really important one, which is peaking for powerlifting. Yeah. Um, and in particular, how timing heaviest lifts and things might differ between men and women and how the changes in water weight across the cycle might change weight making plans. Okay. Let me, the, the second question will probably be the faster one. So let me address the water weight thing because, because again, this is just a huge issue um, that when the men don't have to deal with, right? A woman, and, and it even ties in with the performance thing, right? A, a female athlete can put in her weeks and months of training. And if she's a fem, if she's one of the athletes that craps out in the fourth week of the cycle, and that's when her meat is, well, tough, right? Like it's just that simple. I mean, imagine, imagine a woman at the Olympic level or world champions or, I mean, at any level, well, too bad. You happen to just fail, you know, the luck of it. Maybe that's where Westside comes in, man. We're ready to compete every week. So you just wait to compete till the good week. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, just uh, could you just sign up for every meet? Just sign yeah, up. Yeah, or just wait. Yeah, just yeah or hope you can get in a week out when, yeah, whatever. Um, I mean, in premise, you could, you know, try to plot out when you might hit a good week, but it, it is, it's really unpredictable. So water weight. So again, we go back to the, this four week cycle, you know, week one follicular, week two follicular, week one luteal, week two luteal. Typically water weight will be the lowest in the first week. It may take a couple days after menstruation starts, but that's typically will be at its lowest. It will often go up a little bit in week two and this is due to estrogen. Estrogen changes how a woman's body handles sodium and potassium. If her sodium intake is high, excuse me, she will tend to hold a little bit more water. And I talk about this in the women's book, making sure to increase potassium intake and decrease sodium can help to offset some of that. It'll typically go back down in week three, right after ovulation, as estrogen drops. And then usually, as anyone will tell you, if there's a bad week, it's gonna be that fourth week, right? That is just, that is really just like the shite week for everything in this regards performance may be at its worst mood may be at its worst coordination and that's typically when water weight will be at its highest again huge variability some women get none of this other women can swing two and a half to three kilos of body weight from you know from week one to week four and if you're if you're a weight class athlete and powerlifters olympic lifters rowing of all things is a weight class sport um bizarrely enough, uh, you know, MMA boxing and your competition is in that fourth week, even if your performance is fine to have to shed an extra, you know, two plus kilos of water weight, that's staggering. Like that's absolutely staggering. And on the one hand, and this is sort of right. So we know that dehydration beyond a certain point, you know, two to 5%, some people will go up to 10%. 
depends on how long of a weigh-in, you know, 24 hour weigh-in versus two hour weigh-in, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so we, you know, as coaches, we calculate that out. Where do you have to be? How much can we dehydrate you? What I would say, this extra water weight, don't count that. Right. So don't be like, oh, you're two and a half kilos up. So suddenly that 5% weight cut, in, it shouldn't include those two and a half kilos, right? That's on top of normal body water. Right. So, so like that has to be shed and then you can do whatever percentage you're comfortable with, whether it's three or five or 10, but that, I don't think that extra, I don't think that extra water weight counts against, cause it's removing that is not dehydrating you. It's moving you back to where you would nor be normally hydrated. But is right? the, so let's say, if, Oh, sorry. Um, I was going to say, but is the, like the negative implication though. So our athletes all compete on two hour lanes. The potential okay. negative implication of knocking off another kilo, say, or another liter of water, it would be the loss in electrolytes and the potential to rehydrate in the short term, right? Well, but, but again, you're looking at, re, you know, so like, let's say your, your lifter's weight is normally 60 kilos, mm -hmm. right? So she's 62, you're going to take two kilos off her to make weight and you're going to rehydrate. Now she's in the fourth week of the cycle. Now we're starting like 64 kilos, right? She's got that extra two. I think you can shed that extra two kilos and it not matter because it's bringing you back to where you would be under. Like I would still factor in, yes, if we can get that two kilos, like doubling, saying we're taking four kilos off of you is not doubling the percentage drop because it's an extra two kilos, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah you've always got to deal with electrolyte imbalances. But dealing with that, like, again, keeping sodium intake under control, and most athletes will be doing that. Increasing potassium intake helps to offset some of this. Realistically, you might have to use, you know, an herbal diuretic, dandelion, caffeine, vitamin C. Like, you, you might have to work a little bit harder to get that extra water weight off. But I, I don't know, I don't know that the extra, that the extra water weight really counts percentage-wise, because normally they would start at 62, cut to 60, rehydrate to 62. Well, whatever, you cut from 64 to 60 and you just rehydrate to 62 anyway. It shouldn't matter enormously. Um, I, that's kind of speculative on my part. Nobody's examined it. It's just one of those kind of hope that it doesn't happen sort of things because it really sucks if it does. Mm. Um, and actually, when we get back and touch on birth control, I'll tie those two together because yeah. birth control has a lot of both pros and cons. At least one pro is that it controls all this. Right? A lot of high-level athletes use birth control for no other reason to ensure that their world championships, their nationals, don't fall on a bad week. It allows them to regulate this. So that is one way to go about it, but there's also negatives that come along with that. So, yeah, you may be looking at working a little bit harder. So, again, it's another good place. It's a place to keep a lot of records, to keep track of what's going on with the athlete's body weight normally, because otherwise you go into that week and go, oh, crap, you're four kilos over. You're never going to make it. But if you know that two of those kilos is just extra water retention, you just have to figure out a way to get it off. Um, how about it's the nature of weight class? How Good. about timing the heaviest lifts of the comp prep and stuff like that? How does that differ based on where we would be in a cycle? I, I don't, again, you know, oh, oh, based on, and on the cycle, yeah. I mean, again, we've got these competing things. Is I think the first question is, do women need a systematically different taper than men? And here, I, I've only got a couple anecdotes on this. One is my lifter. One is, I've heard a couple women talk about this, right? So let's, the, the, the typical male taper, last heavy deadlift, the 14 days out, last heavy squat, seven to 10 days out, 
last heavy bench five to seven days. Like that's kind of the, that's how I always did it. I know in recent years, the guys doing enormous weights, you know, they'll, they'll fart around for three weeks just because they're all beaten up, probably for maxing every week. Um, that tends to require a lot longer of a recovery period when you're just that beaten up. Shout um, out, Louis. And, uh, but I think with women, again, just like we talked about, women are recovering faster. The same loading. I mean, yeah, if you've got a woman who's deadlifting 600, right, Steffi Cohen is coming up on it. That may be very different. If you've got a woman who's not, you know, who's lifting 150 kilos or, you know, whatever, 275, 300 pounds, somewhere in that range, it's just not the same systemic fatigue. What I found with my lifter, if she goes too long without heavy, feeling heavy weights, she just craps out completely. Like, even if she takes too long in a, in a workout between reps, she forgets what head. I don't know if it's neurological. I don't know if it's psychological. She happens to take forever to warm up and get clicking. And she takes too long either. And I learned this the hard way because I tapered her the traditional way the first two meets. And like, your training looks great. I don't know what the platform, it just didn't look good. And it wasn't menstrual cycle dynamics. And then I thought about it and her training cycle at the time is she would do these crushing Monday, Tuesday, heavy workouts and set PRs on Saturday. And I thought about it and go, well, why would I change that? Yeah. Right. If she's able to recover quickly enough to go, you know, eight singles at probably 87 to 90% on Monday and come hit her best on the following Saturday. Well, that's my taper week. Right. That's, I mean, I train her very atypically on Saturday. She does a meat mimic. We do squat bench deadlift singles at 90% hoping for a new, like I, I, she goes heavier in training than at the meet, which is a little atypical. But the point of it was that she had this heavy Saturday workout five days after a really heavy volume Monday, Tuesday workout. So why would I change that on meat week? And again, this author, Megan, whose last name I still forget, she said the same thing. She said, I found that a, I needed more 90% work in my overall training but that if I cut the weights too soon during my taper, I just lost touch with heavy weights. My nervous system wasn't, again, I don't know what, what exactly is going on, but I do think for women that aren't lifting, you know, near the male level of weight, like I said, there's some women coming up on, what is that, a 600 pound is 275-ish kilo deadlift. It's in that range. 272. And half, yeah. yeah, 272. I'm not, it's not too bad for an American. No, Hate kilo math. I can kind of do it. I've done it roughly. You know, if you're in that range, I'm sure, I imagine Steffi Cohen tapers very traditionally. Hmm. If you've got a woman lifting much lighter and you've noticed in her training that she can go heavy three days in a row, or that if you give her a lighter day, she just falls apart, you probably want to keep the heavy work in a little bit later, right? And again, some of this is how I compete my athlete. She actually, so I'll take her usually to her either second or third on the Monday, Tuesday before the meet. Now, again, her max, her true gym max is above what her third attempt is at the meet. I mathed it out one time. Her third attempt is maybe 90 to 92% of her gym max. So actually me saying she's going to her third is actually what most people would be doing anyway. But normally that'd be their second, right? If, if you figure 85 to 87% for first, well, no, that's like their first. 87 to 90 is the first, 90 to 95 is the second, 100 plus for third, or whatever your percentages are, right? So I'm, I'm taking her up to her third, but her third is only 92% of her gym max. So it's really the same. I just describe it differently. 
her meat prep, which is two days out, right? We do a short little just keep her groove meat work. I'll take her usually to her seconds. But again, that's 87% of her, of her gym max. And that's what most people would call their first, right? Most people would typically go to maybe their maybe their second on a Monday, probably not for most strongmen, but they would whatever, go to their first attempt or just do warm ups for meat prep. So hers is very similar. It sounds differently because of what I do with her. But I found that if I didn't give her that heavy work on a Monday, Tuesday, or even a medium heavy work on Thursday, she would just fall apart on the platform. And I don't know if you found that to be your general experience or even an average experience with women. I would say that my women's taper, and I remember we had a discussion on your Facebook group at one stage. Yeah. The women that I've tapered, I would normally subtract about two days from the proximity to the comp that I would yeah. have for men. And for the for a very lightweight one, I don't I don't have anybody who's super lightweight as a woman, but the right. very light ones, I'd probably have them go to an opener or close to about three days out on definitely yeah. bench and possibly squat. But yeah. but not as extreme as in the case of Sumi. Um, right. And I mean and let's let me, you know let me point out there is a body weight issue here. My lifter competes at 52 kilos, right? This is a 114 pound lifter. And I think generally speaking, most people will say that some of it's a body weight thing, some of it's just a poundage thing. Lighter lifters, this is even a greater extreme in terms of just because the poundages will not ever be that high, right? Apparently way back in the day, one of Abijayev's lifters, he was a super heavyweight and the Bulgarians didn't have a lot of super heavyweights. And he said, look, I don't recover as quickly as the smaller men. And Abijayev said, no, you're wrong. You're lazy. Get to it. And they had a big falling out over this, but it's true. Like the Russians took that into account. The bigger boys were lifting 50 kilos heavier. It's a greater systemic load, even if it's the same percentage. So I've got a super, super, super light female. So I'm at the very extreme of a short taper, you know, bigger men are going to be at the longer end because they're using heavier weights and more experienced. And sounds like your, your female lifters are right in the middle when that all makes perfect, perfect ecological sense. Like, I don't know what kind of numbers. What about mags, Alex? Uh, Alex has one 48 kilo woman. Yes. Yeah, so okay. She, she would do her openers like three, four, five days out. Um, yeah. Her opening deadlift probably seven days out. Yeah. Um, and then Dead, I've got men. Deadlift is always different. Yeah. Yeah. And then I've got men who are 120 who, you know, three weeks out will do their opening deadlift type of thing. Like not that extreme, yeah. but you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but I know, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Mm. Um, yeah. So, and that's just a poundage thing, a body weight thing. Um, so yeah, I think that's all completely consistent. So I think on average women will probably need a little bit heavier work, a little bit closer in. Um, and, and again, it goes back to a, an, four hours ago where it's like you need to work on what you're not necessarily women have the volume tolerance. Giving them a bunch of volume work is not really a challenge to their system. Mm. A man can do triples at 80% and that's a perfectly good maintenance load to be ready for the meet. And he may need that to recover from the pounding he just came through. Smaller female who's just not doing that kind of systemic, you know, Sumi's actually joked <laughs> and it's not a joke. The meat is the easiest workout she does in weeks because I take her to limits for six weeks in a row on this Saturday workout. It's brutal. Her meat is like the meat itself is the taper workout. Like it's the easiest work because she has to do three singles at a weight she's handled 
four dozen times. Um, but again, this is at the very, it's just it's very specific to her in that regards, but it's just something I observed. And again, this is, you know, I, I've heard people say this, there are male lifters. I think it was a podcast. Who was it? Might've been Matt Gary, might've been Mike Tuchere, who I, I, I do really, I had his old little booklet years ago when he first kind of brought in Autoreg. And, um, you know, and he's talked, you know, talked about tapering and there is variation even among men. And it could be nervous system, it could be what psychological, like whatever the reasoning, but that's also a good place to keep a lot of records. I just think we're talking on average women, smaller, lifting lighter weights, probably not as good at generating intensity, probably need proportionally heavier work relatively closer within some range of variation. So, Cool. All right. I reckon we'll take a very quick break because um, we've covered a lot of ground. We'll come back and talk about birth control. Right. Okay, sounds good. Welcome back to episode 50 of Weekly Weights. I'm Alex, here with Will. With us is Lyle. We've done a lot of talking about um, the menstrual cycle and how it affects training, all that kind of stuff. And you briefly mentioned um, birth control. But we're going to go a bit deeper into birth control now. So firstly, what different forms of birth control exist? And how do they affect the training adaptations? Okay, so birth control was probably the section, well, one of the sections of the women's book that just, it nearly broke me. It's so complicated. There's so many variables. And a lot of this stuff, there's just no data. Some of it is, is somewhat speculative. And so the original form of birth control was the pill. It was an oral form. Um, other forms that were developed later, there's a patch that is put on the shoulder that is just like a transdermal patch. There is an implant, uh, which is Nexplanon, which used to be called Implanon, that lasts for three years. There is the Depo-Provera shot, which is three months. There is a cervical ring, and there is the intrauterine device, which is a little T-shaped metal thing. And there's also there's a non-hormonal version of the, the IUD, but there's the hormonal version. And all I'm gonna talk about here is hormonal birth control, right? There are barrier methods, but they're not affecting a woman's hormones or physiology. So for this discussion, they're not relevant. <clears throat> in the simplest sense, or in the overall sense, birth control consists of synthetic forms of estrogen and progesterone. Traditionally, the form of estrogen is called ethanyl estradiol, just a synthetic form. The synthetic progestins, uh, I'm going to come back to that because that's where it gets really nightmarish. There are also some more current birth control that has bioidentical estrogen set with 17-beta estradiol, same kind women women's bodies makes, and they probably work a little bit differently, but that's a very recent, there's only like one or two that, that use that. So on top of the different forms, Birth control can come in one of two general classifications, which is combined, which contains a synthetic estrogen, a synthetic progestin, pro progesterone, progestin, and it can come in progesterone only. There is no such thing as an estrogen-only birth control. They use estrogen only for hormone replacement after a partial hysterectomy, but as far as birth control, it's either got both or it's got progestin, progestin only. So oral birth control, most of it is combined. There's also a mini pill, which is a progesterone-only pill. The implant and the shot are both progestin-only. Can you hush? Thank you. Uh, the cervical, the patch is combined. The cervical ring is combined, and the hormonal IUD is progestin-only. So, like the basically, the longer-term ones tend to be 
progestin only, and the ones that use intermittently tend to be combined, by and large. Uh, the pill, let me go back, originally used 21 days on, seven days off. And fun fact, I only found this is not in the first volume of the book, but it will be in the second. That seven-day off period called the withdrawal period, there is no scientific or biological reason for it. The reason that they decided to go three weeks on, one week off, is they felt that women would feel more comfortable bleeding once a month. That was it. That and of course, this was predominantly, I, I kid you not, this is predominantly male physicians that came up with this shit, right? They just figured that women would feel more comfortable with it. There is no basis for this. And there is a real current trend to just use it continuously or use it for months and then you take a withdrawal. Just, there's, the, there can be a uterine lining buildup and, and like, but by and large, like they're talking about, I read a paper and it basically said, should the withdrawal week be consigned to the dustbin of science? There is no biological basis for it. The patch is typically used three weeks on, one week off. Cervical ring is used three weeks on, one week off, like I said. The Depo-Provera shot lasts for three months. Implanon, three, year, three years. So, uh, <coughs> um, the hormonal IUD is like up to five years. Uh, I also recently saw they've got a new ring that you can use for like a year continuously, but regardless. So, so those are the forms of the general, like I said, the estrogen, typically ethanyl, ethanyl estradiol, now there is some bioidentical forms. And then we get to the progestins. <laughs> the synthetic progestins are divided into four generations based on when they were developed. Like first was back in the 70s and 80s, whatever, whatever. And they all vary, right? Progestin is a really interesting hormone. It binds the progesterone hormone, the receptor. It binds to the androgen receptor. And that's actually, I should have gone back to that when we were talking about menstrual cycle dynamics and hormonal effects, progesterone binds to the, the receptor where testosterone would normally bind. So during that second half of the cycle, if progesterone is bound to that receptor, testosterone can't bind. So that's part of why you got that decreased anabolic signaling. Mm. Progesterone is not only directly increasing protein breakdown, it's preventing testosterone from binding. So progesterone can bind to the progesterone receptor, the androgen receptor, the cortisol receptor, and what's the other one? Uh, the mineral corticoid, and the mineral corticoid receptor. So it can affect all these hormonal systems one way or another. The synthetic progestins all vary in terms of how androgenic they might be, right? The earliest form of the birth control. Big side effect was acne, oily skin, because the progestin was having androgenic masculinizing effects. Wasn't having anabolic effects, unfortunately, Early in the days, the IOC almost banned birth control because said, well, progestin's an androgenic compound. Is that not beneficial to female athletes? No, no, it's not. It's actually anti-beneficial to female athletes because it ties up the receptor without sending a, a proper a, a muscle-building signal. Second generation was less androgenic. Third generation is the least androgenic. No, sorry. Second generation was less androgenic. Third generation is more androgenic. And fourth generation is anti-androgenic, right? Yasmin, spironolactone. Women love this because it blocks the androgen receptor without sending any signal. Their skin looks amazing. Any acne goes away by, by blocking the, the mineral corticoid receptor. They frequently lose a couple pounds of water weight. Women love Yasmin. 
However, an electone, that drug that they use when you're in hospital with a demon to try and make you shed. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not. It's drospirinone. Sorry. This, yeah. This, uh, yeah, all these names start to get really overlapping. Yeah, sorry. It's, uh, it's drospirinone is the one that's the fourth generation progestin. And they're still developing more. Most of the newer progestins are probably going to be more like the fourth generation than not uh, in, in the aggregate. Um, but so there's just this huge variability. Also, oral birth control works a little bit differently than the rest. So I'm going to focus on that one first because I think that's, I don't know if it's the most common that's still in use, but it is still very much in use. And, and it's got a lot of problems, right? There's a big review paper that shows that oral, combined oral birth control, the one that has estrogen and progesterone, cuts a woman's testosterone and free testosterone by about 50% apiece. It's brutal. And what's happening is the synthetic estrogen is causing her body to make more sex hormone binding globulin, so free testosterone goes down. Of course, the whole part of this is to, just like if a man takes steroids, right? Glutenizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone stop being released. Same thing in women. In women, it means that the egg isn't being released, but it also means testosterone isn't being re released from her ovaries. Women reduce, release testosterone from their uh, adrenal gland. They also release DHEA, which is super important for one. DHEA is actually more important for women than for men. And oral combined birth control reduces all of this. It also reduces the conversion of DHEA to testosterone with the muscle cell. Like, it just tanks testosterone, like I said, by up to 50%. Um, trying looking for one thing while I talk. So, so in a sense, like oral is, is somewhat in that it will have the biggest, the others most likely impact testosterone to one degree or another. You know, a lot of women report decreased sex drive on oral birth control. This is why. It's the decrease in testosterone and free testosterone. Like that's what causes it. There's one paper showing that even seven months after you quit, Sex hormone binding globulin is still increased. So I don't know if it's permanent, but the effects are long-term. Like this is not, you know, th this is not a, a choice to necessarily uh, make lightly. Um, hang on, where did my looking, oh, there it is. Um, when you get into the others, and, and I'm of the general opinion, like, so, okay, so we've got the progesterone only. Right. We've got the patch, which is combined. We've got the ring, which is combined. To one degree or another, they're going to have that same effect on testosterone. The progesterone only, it's a little harder to pin down. The, the data on whether or not they're really impacting this whole system to quite the same degree. A lot of what the progesterone birth control does is affect like the uterine lining and the ability of sperm to actually implant the egg. more. So, but it does affect the hormone the, the whole access to one degree or another. So to, to one degree or another, birth control will probably have somewhat of a negative impact on trainability and recoverability. And studies on this are mixed. Um, there hasn't been a lot of combined work. Uh, I would, what I, what I generally have think, hang on. If a woman is gonna take combined birth control, the ideal progestin would be the third generation progestins. They have minimal androgenic effects. Um, they don't change insulin sensitivity. Like of, they're kind of the best of the worst, right? It's still going to decrease free testosterone. Total. They, they all will. But there's been a couple of studies where they've compared them in terms of muscle gain. And the second generation progestins, which are highly androgenic, means they tie up the receptor without sending the proper signal. 
they didn't gain as much muscle as third generation. Now, the difference was only about half a kilo over eight weeks. And I think the context we should consider this in, goals. For the general female who's just generally training, none of this may matter. Do you, whatever, they're not, the, the, the extra, power, like it's just not that big of a deal. For an elite athlete, this matters, right? And there was a female power lifter in my group. When she went off hormonal birth control, her testosterone levels tripled. Triple. And, she put, and after being stagnant for years, she put something like 50 kilos on her total over the next year. This was a small lifter too. Now, can we automatically tie this to birth control? No, but it's not going to hurt. I know another very top-level female power lifter who was put on Depo-Provera. And of the birth controls, Depo is a nightmare. It's the most likely to cause weight gain. It has severe negative side effects on bone mineral density. Um, I think they only use it. It's convenient, right? A lot of women, people forget to take the pill. They forget the patch. The shot is just shot and go for three months. And I think it needs, should be taken off the market. It's this super high potency progestin that just has almost nothing but negative effects. Like, and I know a high level power lifter who was put on depo by an OBGYN who didn't know better and basically lost a year of training. It completely crushed her performance because it's just such that they, they got to find something better. Um, the other, you know, implanon is not quite as potent. Uh, so if a woman's going to take oral birth control, ideally pick third, gener third generation. Those are desogestrel, norgestimate, <sighs> and gestimate. Here's the thing. Doctors don't like to prescribe it, and here's why. With oral birth control, there is a tiny potential risk of, thrombo of basically throwing a clot. Mm. Second generation birth controls have a little bit less risk. Doctors invariably default to second generation progestin birth oral birth control and they will have a more negative effect than third generation and as much as all oral birth control will kind of have a negative effect. Now, there is one way around this whole thing with oral birth control. That's actually DHEA. They said it is a primary adrenal energy, is primary energy in women, converts to testosterone within women's skeletal muscle, it actually represents 50% of her energy production. DHEA supplementation at 25 to 50, at 50 milligrams a day will restore a woman's testosterone levels to normal been a couple studies by Zimmerman's group that's looked at this. Now, DHEA is a banned substance. So if you're competing in a natural federation, that's off limits. However, that will, that, that, and it can have some side effects. It can have masculinizing effects in terms of, you know, acne and oily skin. And, you know, so we're looking at a lot of uh, competing issues here. To be honest, if I had to pick one, well, barrier methods are always, you know, an option. You know, non-hormonal forms, they're not as, as potent. Honestly, and I should put this out there, I've got a female friend who's like, you need to be the guy driving this, okay? If you are a high-level female athlete and you are in a monogamous relationship and you are the athlete in the relationship, tell him to get snipped, right? Have, have, it's time, seriously, it's time for dudes to step up, right? If she's a high-level athlete and doesn't want to, to – use this for whatever reason, and there's a number that I'll come back to, it's time for you to man up and step up and just get snipped. Trust me, best choice. I did it when I was 42, and I wish I'd done it earlier. I, I never looked back. So I realized it's not always – has worked for me, Lyle. Well, you know what? That works too. But, you know, that's <laughs> not always an option. But I just like – I want to – nobody ever says that, right? And they're actually working now on men's birth control. I don't think – if I'm not a woman – if 
I were, would I trust a guy? Oh, no, I swear, um, I don't know if I'd buy that. Um, for right or for wrong, this has always been kind of a woman's responsibility because they can't trust guys to be on. Maybe put it in beer and guys, then every guy will be on it. Except you and the, me and y'all, y'all, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. So, so that's an option. Barrier methods, you know, uh, if you must choose oral birth control, pick one ideally with a third generation. It does look like the 17 beta, the, the bioidentical estrogen, doesn't have the same effect on sex hormone binding globulin. That the ethanol estradiol is way more potent than than a woman's regular estrogen. So the new bioidentical forms probably better. Unfortunately, oral progest there is no such thing as an oral oral progesterone. They use it for hormone replacement in menopausal women, but it has to be either vaginal cream or an intravaginal. So right now, there's no way to do that orally. Probably the the best of of all of these is the hormonal IUD, right? And what it is, it's a little metal T shape, right? And the non hormonal IUD is just a physical barrier method. It physically prevents the egg from from getting to where it needs to be. It can cause scarring. It's a minor inpatient surgery. It's not risk-free. However, the hormonal IUD releases progesterone, but it's local only. None of it gets into the bloodstream. So it will only, it basically prevents the, the endometrial lining from developing so that if, if an egg gets through and if the egg gets um, fertilized, it doesn't implant. But that will not affect systemic hormone levels for good or for bad. Now, this gets into some of the pros and cons of birth control. The cons are it may negatively affect trainability. I've even got a study it, it impacts, it lessens the adaptation to sprint training and interval training, right? Birth control in general just seems to hamper trainability. However, we already talked about one potential benefit, allows you to control the cycle, right? If you're a woman, if you have a female athlete and that one week out of the month, she cannot perform, it allows her to control the cycle and set it where it needs to be. So that, and, and this has been used at the Olympic level for quite some time. You know, the early paper, an early paper I've got says, you know, birth control, a revolution for sports women for specifically this reason. Um, and actually, I'm going to come back to just a funny bit because it's an Australian thing, that book I mentioned. It's not birth control specific. It's just funny. Um, so that's one reason. Some women are at risk of becoming anemic because they have a very heavy menstrual flow and women frequently don't eat enough red meat and it's very difficult. So birth control may prevent that and they're less, they're less at risk of becoming anemic. Birth control does decrease the risk of ACL injuries because you don't, like we talked about, yes, we got estrogen and connective tissue. Birth control decreases that. So it has, it has, it certainly has benefits, but it also has negatives. So one, one possibility in terms of, of practical use is if, you know, with athletes, we've got the training cycle and we've got the competition cycle. There's nothing that says you can't not be on hormonal birth control during the training cycle and then go on it. This is more for athletes competing frequently, of course. You know, they train for nine months and they've got their World Cup three-month competitive cycle that you can't take it, not be on it when you're in your primary adaptation phase and then go on it during competition. For powerlifter, that doesn't really work. You're on a 12-week training cycle. You're not going to train eight weeks and then try. You, you can't do it in one cycle to get your cycle synced up and stuff. Um, so, yeah, like at least the hormonal IUD will have no systemic effects. So it won't impact trainability, but you don't get any balancing out of any variations in training status. So take your pick. 
Um, it's, it's kind of, like I said, men, just trust me, get it done. Um, go get, go get snipped. I promise you, you'll, 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 ne- you'll never, you'll never look back. Um, oh, other things I've got written down. Some birth control can cause a small weight gain. Depends on the type. Uh, already mentioned reduction testosterone. It does eliminate that little testosterone spike in ovulation. It, that could impact trainability as well. May reduce muscular gain slightly. May reduce adaptation to sprint training and also increases inflammation. Like it, it really does do a lot of negative things, but it's also got some positives depending on what, you, I mean, on top of the obvious, which is to simply prevent unwanted pregnancy for women that have a lot of problems with post uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder and suicidal ideation and depression. It can help. They use it for that when with endometriosis, it's actually first line treatment for PCOS specifically because it reduces testosterone. They, they use it specific for women who don't want that extra trainability to be awesome at powerlifting, which is fine. I get it. You know, no, I like, I'm not saying I'm not trying to be, Uh, like I get it for a lot of women it does it causes reproductive dysfunction it causes a lot of health problems PCOS you know can cause infertility for that it is a first-line treatment because by reducing testosterone you reduce a lot of those health problems and can allow those women to become healthier and conceive and and do what they want to do so it's it's all just kind of a set of of big big ass trade-offs so as coaches if we were to try and sum up everything you've just said um, yeah. Very, very quickly. I'm sorry. What would be the, yeah. what's the practical takeaway for having a woman on, on a hormonal birth control and depending on what it is, you know, what do we do sure. differently? Um, it, like I said, on the one hand, it will certainly flatten out any variation in her performance, right? If she's on a long-term birth control, regardless of what it may do for trainability, it will at least make her stable week to week to week. You won't be seeing huge swings. I don't know that it'll necessarily, you know, I don't think she's going to see necessarily decreased performance in terms of her strength being reduced. I haven't seen anything to suggest that, but her overall adaptation may be a little bit slower. It'll, it still happens. Like it's not that it eliminates it. It simply reduces it somewhat. Cutting a woman's testosterone by 50% doesn't do them any favors. And it's predominantly oral. The others may reduce total testosterone, but not free. That's only, that's really that synthetic estrogen thing. Um, so the hormonal IUD will have the least effect on trainability, but won't impact any mood or other performance swings. Um, so yeah, I would say if they're on anything that's really, that's flattening out the menstrual cycle for good or for bad, you can train them more consistently week to week to week, but their progress will probably be somewhat proportionally slower. And they're just going to have to accept that as, as the reality. Terrific. Um, that wraps up all of the formal questions that I had, Alex. Is there anything screaming at you? All right. We're going to take one more very quick break. And then, Lyle, we're on to the four questions that tell us everything we need. Before you get that, I just want to tell my funny story. And oh, then please. just so it's a, clean, it's a clean break. This is from this AIS book I have. And apparently, and I wasn't aware of this, apparently... Like we go back to the 1950s, right? And everybody just felt you shouldn't, women should not exercise during menstruation. Nobody knew why. They just said that they shouldn't, even female, leading female health folks. And apparently at the time, this was about the time that Tampax and ta- created tampons, right? This is a fairly recent invention. And apparently there were ads in Australia by Tampax that had some of the most cutting edge good health information for women about exercising during menstruation. And the ad that's in this book says, now you can swim 
any week of the month. And I firmly believe that this is such an Australian thing because I have, and I think this is where the term shark week came from. I honestly believe that in Australia, if a woman were swimming, she was going to get eaten by a shark. And I genuinely think that they didn't say it, but Australia, everything wants to kill you. I'm an American. I know that this is factually true. I know that everything wants to kill you. An Aussie man is hilarious. This is what I know about Australia. And, but they said like, that was the ad. Women can now swim any week of the month. So Australian tampon ad says women can swim any week of the month. Well, this was in the 1950s. And at the time, it was just considered unhealthy or unhygienic or whatever it was. It was that was the first that was one of the first ads that basically said, yes, women can swim any time of the month because they <laughs> have tampons. That's terrific. All right. Go Australia. Go Australia. back to the show we're gonna hit lyle with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person so the first God. one is if you could take anyone out to dinner dead or alive who would it be all right so i actually got two so dead is one of my favorite authors a guy named robert anton wilson that probably neither of you have heard of he wrote this book called the illuminatus trilogy a bunch of really interesting stuff it probably did the most it really changed kind of the way i looked at the world when i was in college Alive, Robert Sapolsky, the guy who wrote Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. He's an absolute genius. He looks like a homeless hippie. And uh, he, him, he and Louise Burke are who I want to be when I grow up. Louise Burke, um, she's the Australian sports dietitian, right? Yes, who's a researcher, and she wrote probably one of the best books I've ever read, Practical Sports Nutrition by Louise Burke. is probably one of the best books because she's both clinical research oriented and applied like she's got, cause the AIS is doing such good work. And yeah, so she's, she's who I want to be when I grow up. This book. No, it's called, no, no, I've got that too. That thing's boring as hell. It's called <laughs> practical. I was going to say, it wasn't that good law. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's not. It's this. Cause what it is, is it's a good, it, it, it's a good general look at sports nutrition, but it looks at individual sports both in terms of their physiological needs, but something I think we all forget, which is the culture of the sport. Mm. And this is something that we as trainers and even as, you know, nutrition stuff, right? Cycling has its own screwy culture and beliefs and rugby and football and gymnastics. And if as coaches or dietitians or whatever, if we're not taking that into account, if we're giving an athlete recommendations that don't fit within their culture. The best example, I once gave a lecture to Canadian football, American football players. And I'm like, look, y'all are college students. Now, if I were a traditionalist, I would tell you don't have alcohol after a game. And I know better. I know if you told a rugby player not to have alcohol after a game, he'd fire you. You, you cannot remove. So anyway, probably the best applied sports nutrition book I've ever read. So Louise Burke is who I want to be when I grow up. Very cool. Alex? Question two, who's your favorite athlete of all time? Oh, my God. I don't know that I have an answer for this because I find sports so unbearably boring. No joke. I, sports bore me. The problems fascinate me, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, I don't know if I have an answer for that. What do y'all – like, who would y'all pick? Well, I think I said David Pocock. He's an Australian rugby player. Um, okay. or, or a tennis player or something. Who'd you say? I, said, I would have said a basketball player. Probably, yeah, probably LeBron. Probably LeBron. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess if there's one who probably, you know, I mean, Ed Cohn is motivating. If there's someone who probably, 
did a lot. Uh, there's a, a speed skater named Derek Parra. He was actually the first uh, Mexican American to win an Olympic winter gold medal. And when I was uh, 34, I had gone to Salt Lake City to just try my hand at ice speed skating. And he had got into the sport very late and succeeded at the highest level. And his book basically is what inspired me to go to Salt Lake City and pursue ice speed skating and skate around an ice circle for four years like an idiot. So, Have you heard of um, Stephen Bradbury? Oh, of course. No, I, I, that was my strategy when I raced. I called it pulling <laughs> Bradbury. I'm just going to stay in back and hope everybody falls down. Oh, hell yeah. He's, he's a legend. He's, a man's icon. Great. he's the greatest Australian athlete to have ever lived because he won a gold medal. Yeah, not far off. What's that? Not I, it's, far no, off. It's, to, to, have, to have two heats. Like, he didn't just do it once. He pulled it off in the semis and the final to have everybody in front of him. He was 50 meters behind the entire pack. Everybody fell down. He went, made it to the finals. And everybody – yeah, so that was, that was my racing strategy. I think um, – I don't know how many other gold medals we've gotten in the Winter Olympics since him. Maybe Tora Bright. She was a Mormon mm-hmm. snowboarder. I think she might have picked up one or two, and that's it. Hey. Is Australia a big winter? I mean, is it a big winter sports country? Doesn't not, really. seem- not at all. Not at all. It's just not suited to that. It's just not set up. It's not available. So Dingoes and kangaroos. Yeah, I used to work with a guy who played yeah. ice hockey, and he had to drive about an hour out of Sydney to, exactly. to his hockey rink, and then it was basically like you'd show up and – play games of pickup, you know, for 10 weeks a year. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It's just not part of the, uh, part of that. No, it doesn't work. Um, okay. Question three, Lyle, which movie or television character do you most resemble? Oh, that's easy. It's one of two people. It's either Eugene Levy or Harold Ramis. You go look up their pictures. You'll see it instantly. I don't know Eugene Levy. Where's, who are they from? Uh, he was an American pie. He was the father in American pie. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, yeah. It's, it's shocking. It's, abs- it's, absolutely, it's absolutely shocking. Who's the other one you said? Uh, uh, Harold Ramis. He was the nerdy guy in Ghostbusters. Okay. Harold Ramis. Here we go. It's also in Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Honey, I shrunk. Probably, I, I would say probably Harold Ramis more when I was an endurance athlete and my face was a little bit skinnier and more now Eugene Levy because of the gray hair in my face a little bit rounder. So. That's awesome. All right, fourth question, best question. Your life's being made into a montage. What music would you set it to? Lord almighty. Um, yeah, I thought about this earlier. I'm trying to think what would be a good montage song. Well, I think of it because I've always felt, I watched a lot of those movies I've always felt that everyone deserves one montage in life. Right? Either a driving cross country montage, cleaning the house montage, uh, sports montage. I waited for mine for years. That when you got to get good at something real fast, montage. Um, it never came. I was always in America so montage. You remember that song? That scene? Oh yeah. In America? Fuck, that was funny. What America? Fuck yeah! Oh yeah. That's no, no, the one. The one, the one oh, wait, have a one? song called Montage in Team America. Oh, hey. You know, yeah. and it's about um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's from South Park, and they did they did a skiing movie, and it was yeah. When you need to get good at something real fast, you need a montage, yeah. uh, a sports training montage. Yeah, I waited for mine for years, and it never happened. My life for being in the man into a montage. It's been such a disaster so many times. Um, I got again. What do y'all like? What are your answers? I'm having trouble coming up with something. Didn't you say something by like Migos or whatever? I said some shit one. 
Yeah, Alex went for some trashy hip hop. I just went for something very ambitiously long, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I could see. Uh, God, I just don't know. I'll pick something super random. I mean, whatever. Probably one of my favorite songs that, that when I do karaoke is "Baby Got Back" by Sir Mix Lots. Let's just go with that. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. Just for lack of for lack of a better choice. So I'm doing hip thrust. <laughs> I could totally see that in a really yeah. tight trackies. <laughs> oh, dude! I was I was a lycra-clad weenie endurance athlete. I was an inline skater, a cyclist. My I shaved my legs for years. We wore skin suits on the ice for speed skating. Oh yeah! No, I'm I'm all I'm all about that lycra life. So, oh, perfect. <laughs> it's, used, it's, used used to be anyway. Yeah, this is gonna have some great sound bites for this thing. <laughs> I mean, we'll leave it on that note. I just want everybody to go away with that image. Um, Lyle in lycra. Perfect. Thanks so Perfect. much for joining us, mate. Um, I'm Will. Thanks you can find me at w.berkmanpt on Instagram. I'm Alex. You can find right. me at alexhayes underscore lift. What about you, Lyle? Where can they find you? I think you? I do have an, I have an Instagram, McDonald Lyle, I believe, at McDonald Lyle. It's mostly dad jokes and the occasional ranting and raving. I don't use it for much particularly real. You can find me on my website, bodyrecomposition.com, where all my articles are. Uh, it'll take you to the store. Also, I've got a very active Facebook group. Uh, Will is is in there. Um, I'm there daily. We've got a lot of smart people there. Uh, for some reason, I tend to attract people that that know their stuff. Anything that I don't have an answer for, that we have experts on everything. I have questions that I get answered there because we've got physios, medicos, OBGYNs. Uh, anything you can have a problem with, somebody will have probably experienced. So I learn from my group daily. Um, and it's body recomposition on Facebook. So that's where you can find me. Sweet. All right. Well, thank and you so much with, for joining us. And arguing with Mike Isertel on YouTube. So, but moving on. <laughs> Shout out, Mike. We might get him on the phone one day. We'll give Fantastic. him a while's regards. All right. Thanks, man. Fantastic.